once I got situated and, you know, I got my, my, my feet underneath me again, I, 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 while I was still in high school, what do I want to be when I grow up? Right. And believe it or not, police officer, I've had all these run-ins with police and, you know, I've always respected the police, right? Especially the, the good ones that were, were that cared, right? And, you know, you, you run into those that have attitudes and what have you and, and you know, rightfully so, because listen, we weren't, we weren't being super nice. I was ourselves. Gonna say, it's not like you weren't throwing attitude also. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but you also, you run into the good ones, right? And the really good ones. And so I've always had that respect for them. So I, I, so I said, I want to be a police officer. I hadn't done anything that would prevent me from being a police officer, right? Um, Other than your contacts with law enforcement at that time, did yeah. you have anybody in your family or friends who were law enforcement officers? No, no. Um, I was the first. So when I made the decision, I want to be a, a police officer, uh, how am I going to get it? How am I going to do that? So <clears throat> I went to the local police department that later on I ended up getting hired with. And I asked if I could volunteer there, right? There was a program in the school where federal funds can be used to um, pay teenagers to go work for nonprofits, you know, uh, municipalities and stuff like that. So I figured that's a great way. It's not going to cost the police department any money and I can volunteer and get my foot in the door, get people to know me. Right. Well, the problem is they knew me. <laughs> and so they said, we no. don't need to get to know you. Yeah. We already know you exactly. really well. They're like, no, 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 no. We don't want you in here. No, blah. All right. So, which really, it hurt. Right. Because again, I felt like somebody is, is determining my destination. Right. So then I thought, well, what's the next best way to get my foot in the door? So I went to the city court and I asked if I could volunteer there. I met with the local judge, Judge uh, David Ferris, and he sat down with me and he asked me what my story was. And I told, I told him I was flat out honest, basically what, I, what I'm telling you now. I was that honest with him. And he goes, okay, well, um, I, I'll let you volunteer here. But if I ever hear of you having any contact with the police, you're done. Your friends aren't coming here to hang out. This is not a place for you to do X, Y, Z. No, no. If you want to learn, we'll teach you stuff here. And he, and he really laid the smack down on me, right? Which is what I needed. I'd never had that. Welcome to the Transition Drill Podcast. As members of the first responder and military communities, we need to be planning today for our transition from these careers. Because unfortunately, as many have experienced, these careers can tell us the ride is over before we're ready for it to be done. My name is Paul Pantani, and I've spent the past 30 years in law enforcement, working in various assignments and promoting through the ranks of leadership. With the help of my guests, who like you are either former or current military members or first responders, the goal of this podcast is to provide you with information to help you in your planning. But just as important, we can't forget to take care of ourselves today. So I'm also going to have guests who are going to talk about how to be more physically and mentally fit. Hello, everyone. Happy New Year. Hope each of you has a great 2023. My first guest of the year is Chris Zamora. Chris retired in 2021 after being a police officer for 23 years in Arizona. Funny thing is that his journey to becoming a police officer goes through being a gang member and living on the streets as a kid. He came to the table with a lot of baggage and really had to fight just to be given the opportunity to be a cop. But I'm gonna let him explain it in more detail. During his career, Chris was a SWAT team crisis negotiator. 
Additionally, though, he also had to deal with his own trauma and hitting his own rock bottom. But through what he learned as a negotiator and his experiences, he realized his calling was to give back and help other first responders. Today, Chris is a clinical hypnotherapist, a certified transformational life coach, and the CEO of Law Enforcement Coaching. Thank you for taking the time to listen. Please enjoy episode 72. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Arizona. I grew up in the East Valley, uh, primarily Gilbert, uh, Mesa, and Chandler, and Tempe. Growing up, well, take a step backwards. Do you come from a big family, a small family? No, it's a fairly small family. Brothers, sisters? I've got three younger brothers. And were you kind of the, the leader of the pack? I mean, they kind of follow behind you pretty much? Yeah. Yeah, I was the oldest, so I naturally, you know, I'm the nurturer, so I, I took care of my younger brothers. And growing up, what took up your daily life? Were you heavy into sports? Were you an ap- academic type guy? Well, uh, not really. <laughs> <laughs> so my teenage years were kind of, uh, <sighs> I got into a lot of trouble as a teenager. And, you know, I, I was associated with, with a gang, and, and I ran with a, a group of kids. Uh, I grew up very, uh, very poor, right? We didn't have a lot of money. And, you know, I don't ever remember a time where we had, you know, enough money to pay for the electric, the electricity, you know, the water bill, rent and, and, and food. Uh, it was always, we were always without one of those, you know, that's kind of how I was. And there were many, many nights where uh, me and my brothers went to bed without eating. So as we, as I got older, uh, you know, you become a teenager, you know, go, you get into junior high and, and I can't, I didn't, I couldn't afford the, the, the clothes that all the kids were wearing. Right. And so, uh, bullying started to happen in, in junior high. And, um, the, I noticed that the kids you that, were being bullied. Yeah. Because, you know, I, I didn't have the, the Jordans that the, the kids were wearing, you know, and, and, uh, I, I just wore hand-me-downs and, and secondhand stuff. And, um, so I, I experienced that in, in junior high, and I was in seventh grade and the eighth graders, there were kids that were from my neighborhood. Right. And, and so we had the same demographics. We, we didn't have a lot of money. And so I, I kind of gravitated towards them because we were from the same neighborhood. They were just a year older. Um, <clears throat> so I started hanging out with these guys and, you know, they were getting into trouble. But I noticed when I hung out with these guys that I wouldn't get bullied anymore. Right. Because these are some tough kids and nobody wants to have issues with them, right? So that's what kind of got me started down that road. Uh, you know, I'm the youngest kid. I'm the youngest of the group. And so I'm kind of just watching these older kids, and I kind of wanted to be like them because nobody messed with them. And then we got into high school, and it kind of carried on into high school. Yeah. Prior to your junior high school time, were you consciously aware of the street gangs? I mean, were they prominent in and around right where you lived, or was it more you were exposed to them at school? No, it, it was more uh, at school, and um, I, I didn't know anything about gangs in, in elementary school. Going into junior highs, when I was really introduced to that, to that, to that world. Um, <clears throat> but in, in hanging out with these kids, you start getting this. Here's the thing: when it comes to to this group of kids that I was hanging out with, is we 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 built this camaraderie. Because we came from the same demographic. So anytime any one of us had any food or, or money, we shared it amongst each other. And as a matter of fact, we had a, a little saying, uh, he who eats alone dies alone, right? And, 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 you know, if you think about that, you know, 
you find a group of, of kids like this, you, you want to hang out with them, right? You, you create this bond. And that saying, he who eats alone dies alone, I still use that to this day. Uh, even in my, in my law enforcement career, when we had training days and, and we were out wherever, you know, you're told, bring your lunch because you're not going to be able to drive anywhere. Uh, anybody who, who didn't bring lunch that day, I would never eat by myself. I would always share with them. And that's just how it's always been with me uh, my entire life. So um, I had that camaraderie with these kids. Well, as we got older, um, the, the trouble started becoming more and more serious, you know, and my freshman year in high school, very first day, uh, I got into a, a little little back and forth issue with a, with a gang member and uh, never met this, this kid before in my life, but he was, uh, uh, he was from California um, and he was a Crip and he was wearing all this purple. Grape Street is where, where he was from. And I just happened to be wearing a red shirt that day. I, I wasn't into like Bloods and Crips, you know, because uh, we're predominantly we're Hispanic uh, group of kids. And but because I was wearing this red shirt, he intentionally uh, stepped up to me and started throwing gang signs at me, basically starting trouble with me. And uh, when he did that, the other Crips who were from a different Crip gang, they're from Arizona, uh, but they're all together. They came over, essentially were standing behind him like they're with him. And it's just me, right? And this is my first day in high school. And um, so then, you know, the group of kids that I knew, uh, I told the, the, the guy who stepped up to me first, I said, let's just, let's all go to the bathroom. We'll take care of this in the bathroom, all of us. And let me go get my boys. And I started throwing out names. And then the, 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 the Crips who were from here, who were local, they knew who I was talking about. And they're like, oh, no, no, we don't, we're not involved in this, is what they said immediately. Well, the, the, the guy that started with me, he was from California. He didn't know anybody here, right? And all of a sudden, I noticed even just throwing names out of these guys instilled fear in these other guys, in this other group, right? And so it just slowly, it, it, it progressed and, um, you know, it, it became almost commonplace. And I hate to say this and I hate to admit it, but it became commonplace to, on our weekends, to have run-ins with police, and there are many a night where I ended up in the backseat of a patrol car and having my mom having to come pick me up in the middle of the night from the police because we got in some kind of trouble. Uh, yeah. And so that's, that's how I grew up, you know, my, my teenage years, it wasn't, uh, playing sports and, and, you know, the typical, uh, thing. And because I got in that much trouble when it came time for me to apply to be a police officer. So, well, let me back up. I had to disconnect from this group. At some well, point. And, and I've got a couple of questions that I would like to ask. First off, were you guys identifying yourself as a gang or were you actually just working together for camaraderie's sake? Well, initially we were working together for camaraderie's sake. And then, then the older kids that were older than the kids I was hanging out with, they were the 17 year olds. They were like, well, you guys are all, you know, Hispanic. You guys need to, you know, create your own, your own Hispanic gang. Well, you know, we're kids, you know, I'm, I'm 13 years old. What do I know? Right. And, and these other kids are 14, 15, and, and you know, in, in, in high school, I'm, you know, now 15, 16 years old, you know, so we kind of created our own name, and, and I won't say the name. Right, uh, of course. But, uh, so we kind of associated ourselves as, yes, you know, we're, we're a gang, and, um, and we did. We had many run-ins with the local PD. Um, but at some point, and I noticed some of us, 
not me, but my friends were, were getting locked up. And, and I noticed that when, when somebody gets locked up, nobody, nobody visits them, <laughs> right? Uh, my cousin got locked up. I visited him, right? Those who eat alone die alone, especially when they're in jail. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? And, and so then I, the realization kind of hit me like, um, can I stand alone? I can't stand alone. I need these guys. And I've been doing this for years, throwing out their names just to instill intimidation. You know, at, And this may even sound like a rhetorical question, but at what point or was there a point that your parents were kind of like, hey, you need to knock this crap off. You need to, you know, kind of straighten your act up. Oh, yeah. Or not to, I'm not trying to throw your parents under the bus. Were they kind of oblivious to what you were doing? No, no, no. You can't be oblivious when you're getting a call from the police at, you know, one o'clock in the morning because your kid is out causing trouble, right? Uh, my mom, you know, yelled at me, you know, typical mom stuff, you know. Right. Um, but, I mean, realistically, what is she going to do when I'm 15 years old? You know what I mean? And I grew up with a single mom um, uh, for most of the, most of the time. So really, I mean, she's got four kids. She's got to take care of my younger, younger brothers. Now, the interesting thing about that was I never allowed my younger brothers to hang out with us. Like I, I knew enough that I was doing stupid stuff and I don't want it to involve them. Right. If that makes any sense. No, it makes perfect sense. You know, uh, but yeah. Um, I, yeah. That's how it was kind of my teenage years. Did you, all, did you, looking back on it, did you have your own? moral compass so to speak that kind of kept you you were you were getting jammed up you were ending up in the backseat of a police car but obviously nothing that rose to the level where you actually ended up in jail was that because you were making the conscious efforts to not cross that line or just happenstance it never happened no no i i made that conscious uh, decision I, I knew that if you go beyond a certain point there's no there's no return from that you know you're going to go to prison right so I was smart enough at least to know that. So I guess you could say I utilized the camaraderie from this group, but I didn't allow it to overtake me. Like, like many of them, a lot, I think every single one of them ended up in prison at some point. And some of them are still in prison to this day. I don't associate with them. I haven't talked to them since then, but they never changed the, their ways. While you were hanging out with them and while you were, I'm assuming you considered yourself a gang member. But were you staying on top of your academics? Were you staying on top of school or was? No. Um, <laughs> you know, my freshman year, I, I'd go to class with no pencil, no no backpack with paper or, or books or anything. I would just show up in class and ask somebody, hey, can I borrow some paper? Can I borrow a pencil? Right? You know, how irresponsible is that? But that's that was my routine. I really, to me, academics wasn't uh, at the forefront at that point. For you looking back then, did you have plans for adulthood as a 15, 16 year old? To be honest with you, um, I just not end up in jail. <laughs> well, I, I, I did think I would end up. So I, I, here's the thing. I figured 19, 20 years old was old age, right? Cause I'm, I'm, I'm 14, 15 around this time. I didn't think I would live to be 19. Right. And if I did live to be 19, I figured I'd be in prison. Right. Um, that was my two options. <laughs> Somehow that's what, that's what, it, and that's truly how I thought. And I thought if I end up becoming 19 and turning 19, 20, I'm going to be an old man. Right. And, and I just, for some reason, I just, that was in my, my head. That was in my mindset. Do you, you were going to 
start talking about pulling back from him and I cut you off. Did you make the conscious effort to step back from the, the gang while you were in high school? Um, well, yes and no. Um, so my sophomore year in high school, I, I was getting into quite a bit of trouble. You know, I went to a different high school, a different city. And were you forced to go to another school or your well, yeah, moved? my family moved out of, okay. out of the, the town that I was living in. And so I moved in with my aunt and uncle in a, in a very gang infested area, far, far different than where I came from, where I moved from. Right. And I mean, these were, these were some hardcore gang members. So out of the frying pan into the fire. Yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, my first day at the other high school, my sophomore year, again, I'm getting into a confrontation, (laughs) uh, you know, with gang members. Right. And, but I noticed this time I don't have backup. I don't have anybody with me. And, um, one of the, the gangs from that city saw me scoring up with uh, some, you know, some gang, some gang members by myself. And I don't know, they just thought that I would be a good fit for their, for their group. And they, they wanted to bring me in with them. Well, I, I didn't want to, I'm not, I don't know. I just didn't feel the need that I, I had to do that. Um, but I was getting into trouble living with my aunt. One day I came home and I was like ditching school, not going to school. And I came home and, and, all of my clothes and property was just thrown in the front lawn of the house and the door was locked. And so tough love one one. <laughs> yeah. I knocked on the door. Uh, my uncle answered the door and my aunt said, you can't live here anymore. You need to leave. Right. And so I asked for a couple of garbage bags to put my stuff in and I loaded my stuff up and I walked away and um, I was homeless for about six months as, as a teenager. Just bouncing from friends to friends or? Uh, on good days. Uh, my, you know, sometimes they'd let me sneak in the house overnight to sleep. Uh, if, if a friend had a, a car, you know, they'd let me sleep in the trunk of the car because it was wintertime here in Arizona and it does get cold at night. Um, so I'd you know, sleep in the, in the trunk of a car or I'd hang out at a park in, in downtown Mesa all day. Uh, and I did that for about six months. What was the turning point that got you off the streets? So, you know, it, it was interesting because... I, a friend of mine had an uncle who had a, a, a portable like pressure wash, pressure washer, and he would go to to West Phoenix to the truck stops to wash semi trucks, right? And they and they'd pay him like fifty bucks per truck. Well, he needed a, a helper, so he you know would would he called you know he came over to me and asked if I'd help. I said sure, you know it's extra money. He would pay me five dollars for every truck that I semi truck I washed. Um, but it gave me enough money to get a room, you know, for a night or two. And it, which was really nice because, you know, I had a shower and a, and a bed. Um, but, you know, at, at some point, you know, in the 80s, there used to be this commercial that said, uh, when I grow up, it was like a public service announcement. When I grow up, I want to be a lawyer. When I grow up, I want to be a doctor. When I grow up, I never said I wanted to be a, a drug addict, right? I don't know if you remember those commercials, but that commercial kept running in my head. And I said, you know, when I grew up, I never said I wanted to be homeless, right? And so I kind of, yeah, just on this particular day, I didn't go work at the, at the uh, truck wash. I stayed home and I was watching this show, uh, Geraldo Rivera. I don't know if you remember that show. And it, on that show, he had a panel of kids that were teenagers that were, some of them were gang members. Some of them 
you know, and they talked about the, the tr stuff that they did, right? And really young kids too, you know, like a 12-year-old, I think, or a 13-year-old. And, and Geraldo asked the, there was like a child psychologist there, and, and he asked, hey, doctor, based on what these kids have said, do they have a future? And the, without even thinking twice, the, the, the expert said, no, they don't. It's too late for them. Right. And, and I, th it felt like he was talking to me, right. Because I'm like, wait, what? I'm older than some of these kids. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and that really got to me, right. Somebody, I felt like somebody was determining my destiny for me. And so at that point I said, no, 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 I, I, I'm not doing this anymore. Right. I need to focus. So what I ended up doing was I ended up getting a, a steady job. I think it was like Kmart. Right. And uh, because, and I like working there because they paid you every week, right? So I knew I was getting, going to get something in that week. And then I found a roommate uh, in Tempe, uh, not too far from here, uh, in not, not such a great neighborhood, but the utilities, everything was included. Um, so I was, you know, how old was I? 16, 17, right around there. And have you completely dropped out of school? Yeah. I had dropped out of school completely uh, when I was kicked out of the house. Um, and so it was like this, my sophomore year, that second semester, beginning of second semester. So the rest of the, the year of that year, I dropped out of school and mainly because I was homeless and, you know, right. Um, and then once I got some place to live, you know, stable, if you want to call it that and, uh, employment, then I thought, I said, okay, I need to go back to school. So there was a school in the East Valley, where if you get kicked out of regular school, in lieu of going to jail and getting locked up, the court will say, go to this school, right? So all the bad kids from all over the valley were all centralized in this one location, right? And I'm talking gang members from all over were in this school. Uh, so I, I was able to sign my get myself signed up. Uh, but not court back. ordered. You just went in no. on your own. Yeah, I went in on my own. Yeah. That was a turning point for me. Uh, because it was at that point where I'm like, I've got to take responsibility for me. I, 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 you know, my friends who, you know, I used to hang out with, they're not going to do anything for me because they can't even do anything for themselves at this point, you know? So I had to grow up and I had to grow up fast. So were you able to keep your younger brothers and stuff away from the gangs the whole, through the whole time, even when you were on the streets? Well, they lived in, in, uh, Tucson and it, yeah, you know, I, I made, made it a point for them not to, because, you know, the neighborhood they moved into over there again, it was just gang infested, you know, and, um, you know, I had to, to talk to my younger brother and let them know, you know, basically the decisions you make, you know, at the, you know, spur of the moment is good, could put you in prison for a very long time, you know, and it, is it going to be worth it? But at the same time, you know, don't let people push you around either. Right. You, you know, because if you let people push you around, they're going to do it constantly. They're not going to go away. So sometimes you just got to punch somebody in the face. <laughs> For them to go away, you know, kind of a thing. But uh, they they were able to stay out of the the gang life. And were you able to ultimately graduate from high school on time? Yeah, I did um, because it was like an accelerated high school. It, that's what it allows. That's a, the the benefit of that. It allowed you to to still be able to graduate when you were supposed to. Um, but but that was a rough school. I mean that <laughs> every hour they would break. Everybody would take a break. They go outside and it was a smoke break. 
So it didn't matter what how old you were, you could smoke. <laughs> Even the teachers were smoking with the students out Bummers. there. <laughs> Cigarettes yeah. off a student. Yeah, exactly. You know, and uh, it was a, it was an interesting experience. The school, <laughs> that school alone. But it was funny because you know, I, I would say about ninety nine percent of the kids at that school smoked cigarettes. I was the only one who who didn't smoke. I would just sit there, I, you know, um, kind of just observe people, kind of just hang out and. It's like, I don't know, even then I knew I'm not the same as these people here. I'm a little different. So by that point in time, you'd already in yourself said, I'm no longer a gang member and I'm not going to associate. So you didn't regroup up with any other gang while you were at this school? No, no, I didn't. Uh, I didn't. Nope. It was just me by myself. And, uh, you know, there were some gang members or some gangs that had like five, six people from the same gang uh, rolling through the through the school and, and they were intimidating other people you know and, and I, I had a run-in with with one of them uh, for whatever reason they decided they they were going to focus on me and so the the campus that we were uh, located at was like a, a an air force base at one time and at that time it was still part of the air force base so you couldn't drive on the campus you had to get bussed to that school which was a benefit to me because I lived in Tempe. I didn't have a car, right? So how am I going to get in? And the, and the school was located way in like uh, west of um, or east of Gilbert in Mesa. It was pretty far away. Uh, so it just so happened the kids that I, that rode on my bus because I lived in Tempe, you know, they rode my bus. And it, it was funny because they were going to get into a fight with this group uh, from, from another city. And I knew some of those guys from that other city, you know, that group, but I didn't associate, I wasn't one of them. Well, one day the two groups were squaring off in the, on the campus and security came and broke it all up. Well, you know, I'm a kid. I'm like, you know, what's going on? So I, I asked one of the kids who was one of my friends, Hey, what's going on? You know? Oh yeah. We're going to fight with these guys. Where blah, blah, blah. Well, anyway, that other group from Tempe saw me talking with them. So the, automatically they associated me with them. Well, moment I got on the bus, well, <laughs> as I was walking to the bus, one of those guys from Tempe squared off with me, right? And he wasn't the one, the main guy who was in charge of that group. He was like the second in command, if you will. And so he and I, we we squared off, and and I didn't back off, even though he had all of his friends with him. I was I was scared, <laughs> you know, like just, I'm outnumbered. And so we had squared off. We exchanged words. And then one of his friends said, oh, we'll get him, you know, at his bus stop, right? And so they all went on the bus. And I'm like, oh, man. And uh, one of the guy, other guys was like, hey, you, wanna, you want us to give you a ride home? I'm like, no. I got to deal with this eventually. Yeah. <laughs> and if I, if I take a ride home, what does that, how does that look? It makes me look weak, right? So anyway, they go, they get on the bus, you know, the kids that I have an issue with, right? And they sit like in the, in the center area of the bus, and so I walked in, I'm like, yeah, I better not walk back there. So <laughs> I sat at the very front, right now. Hey, Mr. Bus driver. <laughs> yeah. Hey, hey, everybody. I've never talked to you all year, but let's, uh, let's be friends. Right. And, um, other gang members from other, you know, other gangs were coming, coming on. They saw everything that happened and you know how they are. They're going to instigate stuff. Right. And I remember the, <laughs> this guy goes, Hey. Let's go sit in the back, right? I've never even talked to this guy before ever. And he's, he's because he wants to see a fight, right? Yeah. He wants to see somebody get their, you know, their butts beat, right? So, uh, or their butt beat. And so I can't say no. 
Because if I say no, I look again, I look weak. So I'm like, okay. Right. So I get up and I start walking towards and they're all just like, is like ready to pounce. Right. And I'm just walking by and, and the, the, the main guy, right. He's just, he's just mad dogging me as I'm walking by. And I, and he said something, I couldn't understand what he said. And I go, what'd you say? <laughs> I go, what'd you say? And then I kept walking. Right. Cause I was expecting I'm going to get jumped at some point. And so I walked and I sat at the back of the bus and I had like maybe one seat behind me and then, and then that's it. Right. So on the, on the bus ride, you know, all these stops that, that, that we go to before my bus, my bus stop, uh, nobody was getting off at their bus stop. Right. Cause all these kids, they want to see a fight there. They think, Oh, something bad's going to happen. Right. You know, they're not, they're never going to see me again. Cause I'm gonna get killed. Right. So nobody, and, and the bus driver, it was, he was hilarious. He's like, what? He's like, why is nobody getting off of your bus? Like, wait, wait, what's going on here? Right. And, and we're about two bus stops away from my bus stop. And, uh, and I am just, I'm, I'm terrified, like inside internally, like I am scared. Right. But you just cannot ever show that. And there was a, there was a, a, a kid sitting on the other aisle opposite of me. And I forget what gang he's from. He's smoking weed. And he's like, hey, you, you want to hit? You want some weed? Because they're going to jump you, you know? I'm like, no, no, I'm good. Because I, I never smoked. I never did drugs or any of that. I go, no, no, I'm good. And I look I look up, and the kid that initially shoulder-checked me that started the whole thing, he's he's smoking weed up there, right? And so I'm like, ah, oh, must be nervous, right? And then he gets up, and now he's walking back towards me, right? And I'm like, oh, okay, it's going to go down right now, you know? And, uh, he, he sits down the kid that was sitting on the opposite aisle. He asked the kid, you know, move kid moved. He sat down and he goes, you still want a box? That's what he asked me. You still want a box? And right there I knew he's scared. He, did, he didn't really want to. Yeah. He didn't want to. He's scared. Right. And I didn't want a box. Right. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I want a box. <laughs> I'm like, you disrespected me. And he's like, oh, no, 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 man. You know, uh, you know, we're both down for hours. We're not going to ever back down. You know, I don't really know you to box you is what he said. Right. And I knew right there at that point, this kid does not want any of this. Thank God. Because <laughs> who knows what would happen. And so I, I looked at him. I go, well, don't ever disrespect me again. And he goes, cool. We good? I go, yeah, we're good. And we shook hands. Right. And then he went behind me and, and he peed in the, in the back seat. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, holy crap, how scared is this kid? Right. You know, like what's going on here? So, uh, I got off the bus, nothing happened. And then the, the very next day I get on the bus, they're on the bus and there was this little kid, you know, again, there's instigators, right? I'm just, you know, it's early in the morning. I always would just like nap on the bus on the way to school with a little instigator kid. Uh, they always used to make fun of him, right? Because he had chubby cheeks and what have you. And 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 he's and he's they were making fun of him that morning. And he goes, it, it, so he said something to the effect of "Shut up, or I'm gonna get my boy over here to punk you guys again," right? And he's pointing at me, <laughs> and I'm like, "Oh my god, stop! Like, don't!" <laughs> because now they're gonna view it as I disrespected all of them, and now they're gonna have to do something to me, right? And I'm just like, "Kid, shut up! You know, don't do anything." Uh, fortunately it never, nothing ever came about it. They left me alone. People left me alone. 
um, because they didn't know anything about me. And, and I, I made that a point, you know, the less you know about me, you know, it, it kind of keeps people at bay. None of the guys from your old gang ended up at that same school during the time you were there? No, no. A lot of them ended up getting locked up. So, uh, no, n- not, not one of them. So what year did you graduate? 95. And at that point in time, you're 18 years old. You've now got a high school diploma. What were you thinking was going to be your future? So, um, once I got situated and, you know, I got my, my, my feet underneath me again, I, 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 while I was still in high school, what do I want to be when I grow up? Right. And believe it or not, police officer, I've had all these run-ins with police and, you know, I've always respected the police, right. Especially the, the good ones that were, that cared Right. And, you know, you, you run into those that have attitudes and what have you. And, and you know, rightfully so, because listen, we weren't, we weren't being super nice. I was ourselves. Say, it's not like you weren't throwing attitude also. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but you also, you run into the good ones, right. And the really good ones. And so I've always had that respect for them. So I, I so I said, I want to be a police officer. I hadn't done anything that would prevent me from being a police officer. Right. Um, other than your contacts with law enforcement at that time, did yeah. you have anybody in your family or friends who were law enforcement officers? No, no. Um, I was the first. So when I made the decision, I want to be a, a police officer. Uh, how am I going to get it? How am I going to do that? So <clears throat> I went to the local police department the later on I ended up getting hired with, and I asked if I could volunteer there, right? There was a program in the school where federal funds can be used to um, pay teenagers to go work for nonprofits, you know, uh, municipalities and stuff like that. So I figured that's a great way. It's not going to cost the police department any money and I can volunteer and get my foot in the door, get people to know me. Right. Well, the problem is they knew me. <laughs> and so they said, we don't no. need to get to know you. Yeah. We already know you exactly. really well. They're like, no, 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 no. We don't want you in here. No, blah. All right. So, which really it hurt. Right. Because again, I felt like somebody is is determining my destination, right? So then I thought, well, what's the next best way to get my foot in the door? So I went to the city court and I asked if I could volunteer there. And I met with the local judge, Judge uh, David Ferris, and he sat down with me and he asked me what my story was. And I told I told him I was flat out honest. Basically, what I what I'm telling you now, I was that honest with him. And he goes, okay, well, um, I'll let you volunteer here. But if I ever hear of you having any contact with the police, you're done. Your friends aren't coming here to hang out. This is not a place for you to do X, Y, Z. No, no. If you want to learn, we'll teach you stuff here. And he, and he really laid the smack down on me, right? Which is what I needed. I'd never had that. And so I would, I volunteered at the city court, you know, just filing things here and there and, I got to know the court staff, which, you know, they're all moms. And, uh, you know, they, they, you know, it's funny because I experienced my first hug, you know, mom hug from these women that work there. Uh, They kind of, they kind of adopted me as like their kid. Right. And I just slowly progressed from there. Once I got uh, to know the officers while working in that city court, it was funny because one particular officer, really good friend of mine now, but when, when I was a teenager, when I was getting in trouble, he had a lot of contact, extensive contact with me. And he came into court one day to, 
don't know, for, for hearing. And he saw me and he's like, what, 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 are you, what is he doing back there? Right. And so he's getting one of the clerks is like, are, are you in trouble? Like <laughs> blink once kind of a thing if you need help. Right. And uh, he couldn't believe that I was back there. And so, uh, like I said, later on, and I got to know him as I, we progressed. Now he's a really good friend of mine. He just retired from the, he transferred over to the feds and he just retired a few months ago. And I, I got to go to his retirement and speak at his retirement. But it's funny how, you know, we progressed from that. And so working at the city court, it gave me structure. Uh, it gave me contacts with the police department. They knew that, okay, I've changed and I'm proving it. Right. And at one point I was, uh, so when I turned 18, they offered me a, a full-time position working there as a court clerk. And so I, I did. I took it. I was going to school, uh, college at this time. I graduated high school, and I, I started college, the local community college in, in administration of justice. Of course. You know, yeah. <laughs> what all of us have taken. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And, um, yeah, I just went I went from there. You know, I, I, was, I applied to, uh, to Gilbert uh, PD. And, uh, but they couldn't hire me because I had too much in my, my background. So they, they scheduled a special hearing at AZ post, right? AZ post, they determine, you know, who is, who's going to be allowed basically to become police officers. And if you screw up at some point, you got to go before the board and they can yank your certification. Right. So I had to go do a special hearing. So not only did I have to test like everybody else, and, and pass the test. Once I passed the test and, and Gilbert said, yeah, we're going to we'll, we'll hire you, but we've got to get AZ post approval next. I had to take that extra step and go to AZ post. And it was just like a courtroom. You know, you meet, you go and you, you meet the, the prosecutor. I call him, I call her prosecutor. Basically she is going to argue why we shouldn't, they shouldn't hire me. Right. And I met with her and I had Judge Ferris come with me. Now, is this simply for the city or for the state of Arizona not allowing you to be employed as an officer? It's for the state. Yeah. And so uh, I went to AZ Post. And so they have these, these um, uh, I think, monthly board meetings, if you will, if you want to call it that. I don't know what the official term is. But anybody, any officer in the state that gets in trouble, right, that, that, you know, you lie, you get Brady listed or what have you, or you do something really stupid uh, on duty. Cops illegal. never do anything stupid. <laughs> right? I know. Exactly. <laughs> and well, I learned this that they do that day because I was sitting in there and I'm just listening to all the, the certifications that were getting yanked. Right. For and, and they would say, here's what you're, here's what you did. Here's what they found you did. Um, you know, we're taking your certification. You can't be a cop anymore in the state of Arizona. And it was like, like that, you know, and I'm just like, Oh my God, like this is some serious stuff. Right. And so, and it's set up like a courtroom. You have all the board members sitting up there, you know, you got your prosecuting table, defense table, kind of not the defense table, but like a podium where you go and you, and you, you address the, the board, but the prosecutor table. And I, and I use that term loosely. Um, you know, she's going to argue not to hire me. So Judge Ferris drove me there, you know, because I'm 21 at this time, and and he spoke on my behalf. And I met with the the prosecutor who's going who's gonna to argue not to put me in there or not to allow me to, to be hired. And I met with her and I spoke with her. And uh, when it was her turn to speak, 
it was funny because she said, you know, it's my job to argue not to hire you know, Mr. Zamora. But I, I met with him before this uh, meeting, and I'll be honest with you, I like him. But I have a job to do. So, and then so she went, did her job, arguing why I shouldn't. And so I went up and I, I spoke. And, and I, I said, hey, everything that she said I did, I did. You know, I was a stupid kid making stupid decisions. And at some point I decided I didn't want this anymore. And I changed the direction in my life. And, you know, I, but consciously I made all those decisions on my own. But since then, I have done everything I can possibly think of, you know, to make things right. And, well, I didn't say that part yet, but I basically said, I did everything, but this agency, they want to hire me. I want to be a police officer, blah, blah, blah. Right. And, and then I sat down and then the board had, they have to decide whether or not to allow me to go. And the first three board members said yes. And then we got to the fourth one and she said, no, she wanted more time. She thought I needed more time. She wanted me to continue with school to get my degrees. It'll show that I have discipline and commitment. And she said, no. Well, they asked somebody to second that no, and nobody was saying anything. And then finally, uh, somebody seconded it, no. And Judge Ferris, he's nudging me. <clears throat> he's like, get back up there and say something, right? And so I raised my hand. I'm like, can I... And I approached the, the podium. They're like, yes, go ahead. So I came up and I, and I, I really, I just poured out my heart to them. And I just said, look, I'm not making excuses for what I have done. I did it. I have done everything I can think of short of joining a monastery to make today as painless as possible for me. There's no guarantees that this police, this agency is going to hold that position for me, waiting for me to get my degree. And, and I don't expect them to. This is a very competitive job market and not everybody can get to this point. I did. And I'm ready to do this, you know, and, and, uh, as I, as I explained that to them, uh, the, the lady who originally said no, she took it back. And she said, yes. And then the guy who backed her up immediately goes, yes. <laughs> yeah, right? you know? And then, so they said, okay, you, you know, you, you can, you can start the Academy, whatever, da, 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 right. And, and no joke, everybody that was sitting, cause it was like a big courtroom and, and you're having, you have a, a leadership from all the different agencies in the state are there because they're there for their cases, right. For, to watching their people who are going to get their certification shanked or what have you. Uh, no joke. When, when they, when they said, yes, you can go, everybody like applauded. Right. And I'm just like, Whoa, wow. You know, it, it was, a, it was kind of a shock to me. And so I went up and I shook everybody's hand in a weird way. You were in a really unique and awkward situation because everybody else was there fighting to save their career. You're there fighting to ask to be given the opportunity to start your career. Yeah. And, and it was funny because one of the board members kind of brought that up and he said, just because we're allowing you to start the academy, you're just beginning. You haven't even started law enforcement, right? And, and he really gave it to me, right? But I needed that. I needed to see all of this um, because I carried all of this with me throughout my career. 
integrity. Integrity is huge. And I got to see that before I was a police officer. And so I stayed and, and, I, and I shook everybody's hand on the board, right? Everybody in the room filed out. And by the time I was finished, I walked out of the room. And I'm not kidding you. Everybody that was in the room stayed. They formed a line and they just wanted to shake my hand. And, and I, I even had uh, one, uh, one command level uh, person from an agency who I had tested prior to, who denied me as well. Uh, she said, hey, if you ever want to come work for this agency, you let me know. So you had tested at multiple agencies? Uh, yeah, I tested with one other agency. Oh, okay. And, and I, I got through the, the testing, you know, the written, the, the, the oral, the, the physical, everything. But then it came to the background, and I didn't get through the background. And they don't tell you why, but I kind of figured, I, 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 you know, why. Uh, but, but she was from that agency, and she said, hey, if you ever want to get, you want you want to come work with us, we'll be more than happy to bring you on board, right? So I thought that was cool. I thought that was, that was really nice. But it was a very moving event for me um, to see, one, I got to see what happens when you lose your integrity, right? You're done, right? Uh, two, cops care right? They, these people actually care. I came from a teenage kid that was always getting in trouble with police, but look at these people. They don't even know me, but look at how much they care. It moved them enough that they were going to wait after the, the meeting just to shake my hand. Uh, and that's a story I don't even share. I don't ever, I don't ever talk about this uh, to anybody. So I'm kind of giving you some, some information that very few people know, know about me. Well, but what it does is it shows a deeper part of you to show not only what you overcame to become a police officer, but then the value that you put on becoming a police officer. Because I could imagine it would have been very easy to go, well, hell, I, I, I squared my life away. I'm 18 years old. This is what I, what I want to do. And I'm getting turned away. I'm getting told to basically, nah, you, you made too many mistakes as a kid. We're not going to give you another opportunity. And that's, that's for me, when I listen to your story is it's that not giving up. One of the questions I had in relation to that. So when this was a hearing that you had to initiate this process, this request for a hearing to the state of Arizona, did you have an advocate from the agency that you were trying to get hired at that was in your corner? Yeah, I did. Uh, one judge Ferris, who wasn't from that agency, he was from the, the city court. He spoke on my behalf, which helped. I also had a couple of officers from the agency that was hiring me. Uh, so I, I strategically planned, you know, when I, when I realized I want to be a police officer, what do I need to do? Well, one, I need to get my foot in the door somewhere. So I did that. Two, I joined the Explorer program, right? And that's, for, that's a program, if you're not familiar, I'm sure you yes. are. Uh, you know, teenagers can come experience what it's like to be police procedures, right? And so I joined the Explorer program for that agency, and even, even just doing that was still, they still didn't have that trust in me. I had to, I had to really work on building that trust. Um, but the Explorer program really helped me. It helped me with the procedures. How do police think and what do they do? That on top of now, I've got the thought process of somebody who was on the other side, you know, at one point. So uh, that really helped me uh, to, to get through the academy, even just doing scenarios at the academy um, because I was in the explorer post and we always used to run scenarios every week part of the training that when I went to the academy scenarios were, were easy for me because we'd already run a lot of these you know in, in the explorer program so what year did you start being a cop 1998 
And in your mind, that was going to be your career? You knew that that was what you were going to do? Well, uh, when I was 19 years old, I set myself up. I set four goals for myself. I wanted to be a police officer. I wanted to be a detective. I wanted to be a lawyer. And then eventually I wanted to be a judge. So I set those four goals at the age of 19. I was very motivated, you know, at that age. Not what most 19-year-old ex-gang members probably think of doing. No, <laughs> right? And, and, and again, you know, it's just, I don't know. That was just who I was at that time, right? And, you know, I don't, I, the, the, the gang stuff, I don't look at that as a blemish on my record. I look at it as life experience, mm-hmm. right, that I carried with me throughout my career. So I, I set myself up for those four goals. And by the age of uh, 22, I accomplished three of the goals, I, I was a, a police officer, then I because uh, right out of the academy, uh, I went into detectives. They put me undercover in high school, so I got to go back to high school. That was my first assignment. So you were Twenty One Jump Street before Twenty One Jump Street was cool. Yeah, I, 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 well, Twenty One Jump Street has always been cool since nineteen eighty seven, right? Because I used I love that show. As a matter of fact, that show, it's funny, kind of embarrassing, but that show Twenty One Jump Street is is really what made me want to be a cop because I wanted to do that. The, the, the flipping of the badge. If you watch the opening credits of 21 jump street, they like to flick their badge open to me. That was like the coolest thing. And that's what I like. That was my goal was to do that at some point undercover. And I did, I did it later <laughs> on. Right. But, uh, so I became a police officer. I became a, a detective, uh, and, but, and I became a judge. I was a, a civil traffic judge before I got hired with the police department. Remember I was working for the city court, and, uh, you know, every year you've got to uh, accrue so many hours of training. Well, my boss, uh, I worked in the civil sanctions department. And uh, we, we used to create, uh, you know, payment plans for people, right? And my boss wanted to be a judge because everybody in her family was either a lawyer or a judge. And so Judge Ferris said, okay, cool. I'm going to send you to training in Phoenix. It's, you know, uh, you're going to you're going to be trained on how to do civil traffic hearings. So you're going to sit on the bench, you're going to wear a robe, you're going to preside over cases. And then um, my boss's boss said, "You know what? I need to get my hours in. I'll I'll attend that class. Plus I want to see what my people are being trained in." And so excuse me. Uh, Judge Ferris said, "Well, since the two of you guys are going, have Chris go with you so he can get his hours in." I had no intention on being a judge, right? So, or a hearing officer. So I went and, and I got trained. I got certified in, in that whole process. You know, they, they actually put mock hearings together. You sit on the bench and you make decisions and, and what have you. You explain the process of appeals and all this other stuff. And so the day came. And so what, what nobody knew was on my lunch break, I used to go and I used to observe the judges during civil traffic hearings. And I would just sit back there and I would write verbatim what they, their opening statements, right? Whatever they would say. And, and I wrote that down and I memorized it, right? And I, that started the mindset of someday I could do this, right? Well, the day came when my boss, it's her turn. She's going to do her first hearing. All afternoon, she's going she's, she's gonna to take the docket. Because Judge Ferris can't do it because he's flying out of town. But before he leaves, he wants to observe her doing her first hearing. And he comes up to her. He says, okay, uh, you're ready. It's 
going to start in like five minutes. I'm going to, I'm going to be in there. I'm going to watch you. And she started crying and she's apolog- very apologetic. I can't do it. I just can't. She was too nervous. She couldn't do it. Right. And judge is kind of like, you have to do it. <laughs> I'm leaving. Like my luggage is right here. I got to go, go hop on a plane. You need to go do this. And she's like, I'm sorry. I just can't do it. And, and so then she, so judge Ferris looks at the, the, the court administrator, the, the big boss who went with us. Right. And she's like, don't look at me because <laughs> I have no desire to do that. Right. I'm, I'm not interested. And I'm, I'm listening to this conversation. I'm like, I'll do it. And they all kind of looked at me because I'm 21 years old at this time. And you have to be 21 to be able to do this. And so he, they all looked at me like, what? <laughs> I don't think so. Right. I go, yeah. I go, what's the big deal? You just read the law. You interpret the law, listen to both sides, the preponderance of evidence, whoever tips the scale to them wins, you know, and so not rocket science. Yeah, right. Exactly. And so <laughs> we're not conducting brain surgery here. So they let me do it. Right. So they, so now I've got three of my bosses now watching me and I'm doing my first hearing and I, I recite verbatim what I learned. And it, it really made me look like, like, <laughs> like I knew what I was doing. Right. And I read the law before I went in. I listened to both sides of the story, who presented evidence, who presented what, made my decision, explained the appeal process to them, and that was it. And afterwards, Judge Ferris came up to me, shakes my hand, he goes, you're our new hearing officer, right? So I became uh, a, a judge for the for the uh, civil traffic hearings uh, after that. And then I, a few months later, then I got hired with the, with the police department, right? But it was a cool opportunity because uh, I had, it's funny, I was in, I was in, <laughs> I was at community college, right? And one of the defendants who came in for like a speeding ticket was actually one of my, one of my classmates in, in school. <laughs> and she's looking at me like, what's, what is this? You know? So then I had to explain to her, well, now that, you know, I didn't realize that, you know, there might be a conflict of interest because we're here. Do you still want to proceed with this? Cause we can reschedule it if you wish. She's like, no, no, I'm good. We'll just go through with it. Right. But it, it was funny. Cause every time people would come out, they, they'd always whisper to the, to the clerks, that's the youngest judge I've ever seen. How old is he? Right. It made me proud. It made me like, okay, I, I did something, you know, six years prior, I was, li- I was homeless living on the street and now I'm, I'm wearing robes and, and presiding over civil traffic cases in a court. Like, like, you know, it just, to me, it was something to be proud of. Definitely. Going backwards a little bit, when, when you actually turned your life around and went into the academy, what was your family's response to that? Were they supportive of it? Had, had you mended any of the bridges with them at that point? Oh yeah. They're, they're very supportive of that. Um, you know, not, not all in my, in my family, like my relatives, uh, were, were law abiding, but they, they knew that, that, you know, you can either choose this life where you're going to end up in prison or dead or this other life where you can be a normal person, right. And being a police officer, you know, they, they were very supportive of that. And you ultimately did 23 years. Yes. Retired in 2021. Yes. And I want to get into your your training company that you're doing today, but I want to take a step back. One of the aspects that I want to bring with this podcast is the importance of taking care of yourself, and especially your mental health. And you had a unique experience very early into your career of basically being told, keep it to yourself. Don't talk to anybody. Yeah. So after I did my undercover stint, um, I went to patrol, right? And so my first patrol sergeant, I was on my own and got, got through FTO. I'm on my own. My patrol sergeant 
one day sat sat down with me and he said, don't ever share your feelings uh, with anybody, uh, not with a psychiatrist or a counselor, because if you do, you're committing career suicide. Uh, you won't be fit for duty. And so when he told me that, that really stuck with me because I, re- I looked up to this person. He's my sergeant, right? And I have a lot of respect for him. He knows best. It was my thought because what experience do I have? Was there, an, was there an event that had happened that prompted that conversation or is this just a generic conversation that he had with you? It, just a generic conversation. Um, it just, it just came up and, um, it, you know, there was a lot for whatever reason at that time in the age, in the agency I'm from, there was just so much, uh, people that were just disgruntled, they weren't happy. And, you know, for whatever reason, I don't know what it is. I'm brand new. I don't even know any of this stuff. Right. But I remember having that conversation with him. And so I carried that philosophy with me for many years. And that ended up having quite a, I'll I'll say a damaging impact on you emotionally, but you had several traumatic experiences, including the death, four deaths of coworkers. Was, well, for those deaths, were they all one incident together or or spread across time and were they all on duty incidents? Yeah, all of them were on duty. Uh, You know, one was uh, a year into my career, uh, a buddy of mine, uh, he was killed. He was arrested. He was arresting a, a guy on a warrant. They got into a fight and, and a semi ran them both over because they were in the street. And I just seen him like a week before, we, you know, he had his kid on his little boy on his shoulder and, you know, just a super dad, super, super nice guy. And, uh, he ended up getting killed a year into it. Um, and then in 2006, a buddy of mine, he's a motor officer. He was on his way into work, DUI, uh, driver went head on with him and, and he was killed. And then in 2010, I believe, uh, another friend of mine, he was a Lieutenant, he was doing a traffic stop and he got shot, shot in the face and he was killed. And then a few months after that, in June of 2010, another friend of mine, uh, was, was killed in the line of duty. Through all, all four of those incidents, was there ever anything offered from your agency as far as peer support, mental health, talk to somebody, encouraging you and other members of your agency to go talk to somebody? Well, in the the first one, uh, a year into it, uh, because we were all in the, in the same academy class, so our academy class came together to talk about it. So that helped. Um, with the you know, with my buddy, uh, Rob, the, the motor officer, um, I don't remember any, any, anything, you know, any kind of a debrief or anything, but it didn't happen in our, in our, in our town. It happened in our neighboring city. Right. Um, uh, and then, you know, with my, my buddy, uh, Eric, um, he was a Lieutenant and, uh, I was in internal affairs at that time. And, you know, when you, when there's an officer involved shooting, IA gets called out. You know, we kind of just shadow and kind of just go out there, kind of get a, an idea of the scene. So I went out to the scene. Um, there were multiple scenes. There's a big, it was a huge scene because it was a big shootout on the freeway um, leading out of the valley. And then, and then it culminated into a major shootout at the very end uh, with multiple agencies. And I don't, I don't recall personally being involved in any kind of debrief of that. Patrol probably did. 
but because I was in internal affairs, I don't think the thought was that we needed it, right? Because we weren't we weren't there as it happened, right? right? But still, you're still there on scene, viewing everything, right? At the end of the day, it's a member. It's a member of your organization. Exactly, exactly. And but I don't remember that, and, and maybe they did, and I just don't remember that. Uh, but I personally didn't participate in anything. And then uh, you know, with my buddy, he was from another agency. Uh, nothing was nothing with our agency. Um, but I never let anybody know at my agency that, you know, I knew, knew him directly. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's. And you, you say something that's very poignant and it's going to lead me into my next questions. You said that on that shooting incident, if your agency offered anything, you didn't take advantage of it. If they offered it, I didn't know about it. Um, would I have taken advantage of it? Had I known about it, I don't know. I don't know if I would have at that time. But where I'm going with that is you actually got to a point where the the trauma that you had experienced was starting to impact your life. Yeah. And so I've got two questions off of that. First off, looking back in hindsight, what were some of the early signs that you started noticing that maybe you ignored or tried to explain away as just not important? Well, um, and th- those are just four, those are four major incidents, right? Correct. It, and you're not, you don't even include all the, just the normal day-to-day yeah, work functions, right? Yeah. The stuff that we see, you know, and we'll see things that the majority of the public will never see, thankfully for them. Um, but I remember one, when was it? Uh, I, I responded to a scene where, um, a, a guy killed his entire family, uh, murdered five people and then four people. And then he, and then he committed suicide as right when we were arriving on scene. And one of them was like a six month old baby and and he he gunshot to the head for each of them. And, you know, at that time I wasn't a dad or anything. Right. So I could deal with situations. Yes. It's, it's heartbreaking and, 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 you know, uh, but I was still able to maintain my composure and, and deal with it. And then I remember Cause I was the first one on scene at that. And, uh, we, that weekend I was at a bookstore cause I, I, you know, on my weekends, I go to the bookstore kind of just to unwind. I, I like reading and, and just all of a sudden the room just got really small and I became really claustrophobic. And I, I'm like, what, what is that? What's happening? Cause it's never happened to me before. And, but I didn't, I kind of just brushed it off. Like it was nothing. Well, you know, it's, you know, now I know, that it's signs of some post-traumatic stress that I'm, I'm dealing with. I'm feeling claustrophobic now. So then as we progressed and uh, I just remember, you know, I was in investigations at the time and, and I would drive around the block. I'd go, go to work and I found myself just driving around the block four or five times, listening to my music, trying to tuck myself in, just pulling in to, to go to work. To go to work. Day. Yeah. Every morning. That's what I would do. That was my routine was I'd, drive around the block where the police department was. And, you know, I eventually I'd park, I'd walk in and it just felt so oppressive walking into this building. And I noticed I was always in a constant state of just sweating, like nervousness. The only way I can explain it is if you've ever gone to a haunted house on Halloween time, you know, they, they pop up at, you know, shopping centers, that feeling when you go in there, you know you're not going to get hurt, but the the anticipation of when somebody's going to jump out, right? The jump scare. 
I kind of was always living, I was in that state all the time, sweating, anxiety. Um, and, and I just couldn't figure out what was going on. Like, what is happening here? But I'm not going to say anything to anybody because, you know, I was told you given that advice years ago. And I don't want anybody to look at me like I'm weak. And uh, so I just, that's, that was my existence for a while. Did it ever become apparent enough to anybody that you worked with, friends or family, that something was wrong and questioned you about it? No, um, because I always put on my game face. And the only way I can describe it is if I had a a mask with a happy face on it, I would just put it over my face. And that's what people saw. But they didn't see what was really happening on the inside. And it got to a point where I, uh, I just... I couldn't, I just hit rock bottom. You know, I, I took time off. I was in, I was a homicide detective at this time and I was a hostage negotiator. I was in school, uh, to be a hypnotherapist, life coach. My, you know, my, my ex-wife, wife at the time, you know, we, we just had our, our son. And so, you know, I'm a dad now. I'm a new father. That's enough stress right there. But then I had all these other responsibilities. Being on call when you're a homicide detective. Being on call when you're on the SWAT team. Um, school, right? Assignments, all of this. And, and on top of that, I'm a DT instructor and a fitness instructor. So I would teach on top of all my other responsibilities. And I just put too much on my plate. And I just could not. It just, it just all, just, I hit rock bottom. Did you realize that you were struggling and you were putting more things on your plate to try to take up that free space in your head? I don't think so. I, it, it, that's just my nature. I like contributing to the whole, the whole, I'm a team player. And so if my agency, you know, if they called me in the middle of the night, hey, we're shorthanded on patrol because a major incident happened. Oh yeah, I'll, I'll be right in. Like it didn't matter. You know, when I was in NARCs, I would have informants call me, hey, there's a load coming in from Mexico it's my weekend and I'm like, okay, rock on. I'd get to find a team and then we'd go and we deal with it. Like to me, because it was all part of the team. Right. And so I, I put the team first before my own needs. And, and that's what we as police officers tend to do. You know, we, we have our, our priorities of life. We put innocent people first, then we put ourselves and then we put the criminal. Right. And that's how we base our decisions. And if you think about it, we do that even in our personal life. We put everybody else first, our family, you know, our kids. Uh, if friends call, hey, I need help with this, you're going to drop everything you do to go help, right? And then we neglect our own personal needs. And, and so we, we, having that awareness that you're doing that, that is important. The awareness aspect of it is what really changed for me because I had to hit rock bottom because I didn't have the awareness. I didn't know I, what was happening to me. And it's funny because, you know, I was in investigations and we were having, uh, it was somebody's po- uh, birthday. So, you know, we, we, somebody brought in a cake. We're sharing this, everybody, you know, we're all around talking, sharing a piece of cake. And then all of a sudden, I remember distinctively, I, I'm about to eat some cake. And then the room just started getting small again, just out of nowhere. And I was, it felt like I was going to have a panic attack. And, and it scared me because I'm like, what is happening to me? I don't know what's going on. And I didn't even eat the cake. Like I, 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 th- I threw it away. And slowly I made my way out of the office. I didn't want anybody to see me because I didn't know how I was looking. Right. Your clown face, you weren't sure if it was on. Yeah. And so I, 
I walked out of the office, walked out to my car, and I had when I drove around, I had the windows rolled down, and I'm kind of freaked out, like what is happening to me? I didn't have the self awareness, right? And uh, shortly thereafter, I took a leave of absence, and I took it three months, and I had to use FMLA, use all my sick and vacation, you know, at at a, at a certain point. You know, you look at the productivity of an officer. They used to be productive. And all of a sudden, they're not productive anymore, right? Instead of looking at it like that officer is lazy, doesn't want to do anything. No, no, you've got to look deeper. Why is it that at one point, this officer was very productive, and now they're not being so productive, right? Because, you know, I talk about the FMLA leave. At one time in my career, I had so much vacation built up because I never took time off that if you, if you reach a certain point, you start losing vacation. You got to burn your vacation Use it or lose it. Yeah. And there were times where I was losing vacation. So I had to make myself take time off, but that kind of showed the level of, of commitment or even over commitment to this career, right? That showed that maybe I was neglecting my own needs. I need a life outside of police work. Right. And so I ended up exhausting all my sick and, and vacation time. And I was, you know, I went and I saw a, a, a psychiatrist because I, I need, I hit rock bottom. I needed help. With that. So my first question, you, you made a, a great point of, and I think that we need to do better across the board for first responders is the importance of a life outside the job, which obviously you didn't have. You weren't taking any vacation time. You weren't taking care of yourself. When you finally took that FMLA time, though, how did you explain it to your agency? How did you explain it to your family? Because there's that stigma, like you said, from early on in your career. If I admit that I've hit rock bottom and I need help, I'm going to be perceived as weak. How did you cross that bridge? Uh, you know, when you hit rock bottom, you don't care. Like, for me, I didn't care. Like, I need help from somewhere. I don't know where, but I need help. So, in my FMLA, FMLA leave... I listed post-traumatic stress. I just did it because I don't know how else to to explain it. Now, at this point, I was, you know, I, I'm, I'm a, a crisis intervention team uh, trained, right? So I know about post-traumatic stress at this point now, right? And so, but it's funny because I teach about, I used to teach officers about uh, the, the, the self-awareness. You need to know, uh, be aware of when you're doing certain things, but yet I didn't even recognize it in my own self, right? And I explained post-traumatic stress is like this. If you had a smudge on your face, right, on your forehead, how do you know you have that smudge on your, on your forehead? People are going to tell you, right? So typically, those that are close to you are going to tell you, hey, Paul, you're act, you know, like your wife might come to you, hey, you know, I notice you're, you're really angry. You know, you, you've got a short temper. You don't like to go hang out with friends anymore. You like to isolate. We don't talk anymore, you know. That's them telling you. You're drinking you, more. You're drinking more, right? You know, you're all of a sudden now you're going to the gym nine days a week. <laughs> yeah, right, because you got to fill that hole, right? And, and, and unfortunately, you know, with police officers is sometimes you, you do self-destructive behavior, right? If you're married, you might go and, and start womanizing, right? You might start going, infidelity happens, right? Because you think, if I do this now, it's going to make me feel better. I'll do anything so I don't feel this way, Right. So then you go and you, you cheat on your spouse, but what happens? You create more issues with yourself, right? You know, it's it's a temporary relief, but guess what? The very next day, you're back at the bottom again, 
right? And this time you've created more issues for yourself, right? And that's, that's kind of what happens in, 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 in what we did. If I was a drinker, I, I would, and I, and I, and I'm very honest about this. If I was a drinker, I'd be an alcoholic. I, I guarantee you because I wanted to just do anything I could to get rid of having, feeling that way. You know, when you're dealing with emotional, uh, emotional stress, emotional pain, I would rather have a broken leg or a broken arm because then I can reason, oh, here's why I'm experiencing pain because I broke this bone, right? But when you're dealing with emotional pain, you don't know where it's coming from. Where is it coming from? And that's part of the scary, that's what's scary about it is you can't pinpoint what, what's happening. And so I hit rock bottom. At that point, I didn't really care. And how many years into your career is, is this? Um, that was 18 so coming close to the end. Yeah. But you also had a period too, was it at that same time where you actually considered resigning? I did. And part of the reason, there was a, uh, prior to the 18 year mark, I, I experienced post traumatic, what I didn't recognize it at all, right? At the 18 year mark, I was schooled enough that I was recognizing it more. But uh, there was a point where I was so disgruntled with my, with my agency. I expected them to know that I needed help, right? How are they going to know if I don't tell them, right? right? And, and, and I'm putting on my game face. When they're not going to know, but I expected them to. And because they didn't do anything for me, I got really disgruntled and I got so disgusted in the sight of my, my agency patch, my uniform. Not the badge, because the badge represents more, right? But the agency. And... I just, I said, you know what? It's not worth it anymore. I'm just going to quit. Like I'll, I'll find something else to do. That's how bad I was. You know, that's how deep and dark that hole was. And so I typed up my letter of resignation and I walked it to the chief's office. And, you know, once I handed it to the chief, it's final, right? It's, 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 it's very final. So before I walked in, I just, I started to just process everything and, and look back on everything that I did. And, and the story I shared with you earlier, you know, that extra step I had to do, all this hard work I had put in could be all washed away the moment I, I, I give this letter of resignation. And and it's like, I started thinking about how, how proud I was when I graduated, how proud I was. Uh, and because I got to do some really fun things in law enforcement that a lot of officers don't get the opportunity to do. And I just, I started thinking about it and then and then I visualized myself 10 years from now, 15 years from now. If I resign, I'm going to always ask myself, could I have done it? Could I have stuck it out in those tough times? Would I regret resigning? And the answer was, yeah, I would have regretted it, right? I knew enough to know that. So I didn't want to live with a life of regret. So at that point, I reverted back to training and, and to narcotics training. Narcotics training, that's, that was my niche. I love being a narc. That, I mean, I, if I could do that, you know, my entire career, I would have, right? And one of the things that I was trained on was during uh, these narc operations, if a bad guy pulls out a weapon on you and you're in a drug house, you can have an entire SWAT team waiting at the front door but they're not going to be able to get in there fast enough to save you. So you have to take the, the, the ownership. You have to take the responsibility for yourself, for your own safety. You must get yourself out of that situation. Don't ever expect anybody to come 
uh, rescue you. If they do, cool, that's gravy, that's awesome. But you have to fight your way out. That's just how it is. And there were times where I did some deep cover assignments where I didn't even have backup, right? And so that kind of triggered something. Something went off in my head when I realized that. And, and I decided I'm going to become a detective of emotional stress, right? Because I'm going to use my skills as a detective. And now I'm going to start to figure out why am I feeling this way? What is going on with me? And then how do I fix myself, right? So by this point, you had identified that it was trauma-related stress that you were experiencing? Kind of, sort of, uh, at that time. Uh, Because it took me a few years. You were at least leaning more towards it. Yeah. Um, Because again, you know, the initial onset of it, I had no idea. What's going on here? Now, I say that consciously, I had no idea. Subconsciously, I knew exactly what was happening, right? And, And... so, but I didn't, at that time, I didn't know how to, how to make my conscious thought talk to my communicate with my, my subconscious thought. And so I really started making observations, daily observations of myself. And, you know, what, what did I do every morning? You know, I would get up and go to the gym and then, well, I'd get up, I'd have certain thoughts in my head, you know, uh, and, and that were not positive thoughts. They were just negative thoughts, you know, and I go to the gym, same gym, same time, come home. And then I was just, you know, repeating the same pattern of thought that created a pattern of emotion that created a pattern of behavior, which ultimately created that pattern of life that I created for myself. And it was all just through negative thinking. And once I figured that out, what I was doing I thought, okay, how do I break the, the pattern of thought, number one? Because I need to break the pattern of emotion, but I got to break that pattern of thought. And so one of the things I would do is, it, even though I go to the gym, the gym helps, it was a stress outlet. And I, I said, okay, I'm not going to go at, you know, this hour that I always go. I'm, I'm going to go at a different hour. And then I, and then I added to that, I'm going to go at a different hour, but a different gym, right? Somewhere else, change of scenery. And so once I started focusing on how to break those patterns of thought, because, you know, if we start thinking a certain way, we create those neural pathways in our brain and that becomes our, our go-to way of thinking. And if, if it's negative, it's not, if it's not serving you, then why would you continue to think that way every single day? So I needed to, I didn't know about neural pathways or anything like that, right? but I knew what I was do, what was happening. I, you know, how, how are you going to get any better if you're just repeating the same thing over and over again? But even with this increased self-awareness, you weren't able to kind of pull yourself out or, or get out of this enough to where you did ultimately hit rock bottom? Um, I hit rock bottom. Yeah, it, it, the, the self I wish I could say it was like that, right? <laughs> you know, oh, I, just, I thought of it like this and I, I no, no, it was, it took In the years. movies, that's the way yeah, it right? happens. And, 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 but the reality is this, no, it took years it took years of me going through this and, and recognizing what was happening to me, you know? And, and so in the process, I created coaching techniques throughout this journey. And again, it took me years to, to create. And these coaching techniques helped me to get through that process. They helped to help me to regain that sense of balance. Where did you learn these coaching techniques? I just, they just came to me. Like I didn't, I didn't go, you know, uh, I had gone to school 
and I, I became a, a clinical hypnotherapist. So I got to learn how the subconscious and the conscious work. What drove you to go to, to do that? So at that time, when I had all the, the responsibilities where I was a, a, a homicide detective, a SWAT team, you know, negotiator and going to school, we were, my agency was hosting a crisis intervention team training and, and first responders from the East Valley were coming to our agency. And I was tasked with teaching about suicide awareness. And so in, in, in putting my presentation together, I pulled up stats on officers who were killed in the line of duty for the past, the previous five years and nationwide. And in, in, if I recall correctly, the number of officers that were killed was the average came out to like 65, so, you know, somewhere right around there. So then I pulled up the stats on active duty officers who committed suicide for the pre same previous five years. And the number was like 160 something officers, right? 160 something average. We were getting killed in the line of duty, 65 average. So I had the realization came to me. We're not bad guys. Aren't killing us. We're killing ourselves. And that was just such an eye opening experience to me. So uh, knowing who my, my audience is, first responders, police officers and, and fire department and EMS, we don't like to take medication um, because it, it hinders our performance. Right? So I, I thought about holistic ways that we can alleviate some of that stress that we're dealing with, you know, and one of the, so I looked up different uh, modalities, you know, like yoga and hypnotherapy was one of them. And the more I looked into hypnotherapy, it was all about, you know, the mind and, 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 and like mindset and, you know, autopilot and we call it autopilot in, 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 in law enforcement, but you know, it's the subconscious and the conscious and allowing the two to work together because that, that seems to be what we, where we fail is we don't get the two to, to talk to, to, to each other. And I just really like the, the concepts of, of hypnosis using hypnotherapy uh, to help. So I found a local school uh, here in Tempe and I went to school and I got trained on it. Um, while I was there, I got my, my certification and then I figured I'll do the life coaching course as well. I had no desire to become a life coach. I just took it because I figured it would help me to get more information uh, from my clients, right? Ask, you know, really good questions. And, uh, you know, you fast forward to 2022 uh, and now, you know, we've created a law enforcement coaching uh, LLC and now we coach law enforcement. Taking a step back, because I want to get into that aspect. You hit rock bottom. You took your FMLA time. You came back from that, did a couple more years in law enforcement. For somebody who is listening to this, who might be realizing that they're at their rock bottom and they need help. And so that's the first big bridge you got to get across. You got to admit that you need help and you need to reach out to your organization and tell them, hey, I need help. You come back from that. What are you doing different day one after that that helped you going forward? So uh, one of the coaching techniques that I teach is um, being in the present moment. And, and we've hear, we hear that all the time. It's important that you're in the present moment, but how do you do that? It's easier said than done. So we are, we're time travelers, all of us. We travel to the past 
And we start thinking about the time of when we were happy, right? And then if you go and you live in the past, you're creating uh, depression, right? Depression because you can't replicate it when you come back to the current? Exactly, because you're, you're thinking about, so a good example here, I love narcotics. Narcotics was my, that was my thing. But you're only allowed to do so many years, then you got to get cycled out, right? And rightfully so. And I just loved it so much. I identified with it. That was my life. Then I got removed from there. I had to get cycled out. And then I got put in, in internal affairs at that time. And what I kept thinking about was my time in narcotics. I hated internal affairs. It was so, uh, it, to me, it was just boring. I hated sitting behind a desk. I just, the whole, even though it's much is needed, absolutely. And I learned so much being an internal affairs uh, detective, but at the time I didn't recognize it, but I kept focusing on my first search warrant. My first search warrant, I was a month into this unit and we hit an, uh, uh, an indoor grow. And, you know, we're, it's like one o'clock in the morning, we'd secured the house. Bad guy was, was transported to, uh, to the, to the PD. And now we're going to dismantle this grow. But before we were going to dismantle it, we needed to eat because we'd been working since noon that day. And it's now, you know, middle of the night. And so my boss went and he bought us all food from, you know, a drive through somewhere. And I just remember we were sitting in front of the house. We were sitting in the bed of my truck, you know, and, and I'm just sitting there and it's, it's, it's the middle of the night. It's October. The weather's great. And I'm eating a hamburger, you know, drinking soda. And I'm thinking, I can't believe I'm getting paid to do this. Like, this is freaking awesome. I love this. Right. So I kept going back to that memory, wishing it was still back then. Right. And so it was making me depressed. Little did I know that what it was, what was happening. So sometimes, you know, we live in, in the, in the past or we live in the future, right? Uh, if you're living in the future, you're creating undue anxiety, right? So your depression, anxiety, right? We're always jumping back and forth. And, and where do we not suddenly, where do we find ourselves in the present moment? The present moment is where we create happiness. You see, you can't create happiness in the past because that's past, right? You can't create happiness in the future because it's not here yet. It can only be created right now, right? So you and I are talking, you and I, I you know, I'm, I'm not thinking about the past. I'm not thinking about the future. I'm focused here, right? And, and having a great conversation with you. Um, so we have to be aware when we time travel, right? So how, so how does this happen on a, on a, on a patrol. I'll, I'll, I'll share my experience with you. So my weekend, right? I'm clocking out and I'm going to start my weekend. And I'm like, yes, this is going to be awesome. You know, you, you got all these plans you want to do. The bottom line is you're not going to be at work, right? So I'm like, yeah. So uh, I clock out and it's the best feeling ever walking out of the door. Every, all your, your office, all your, your buddies, you know, everybody made it through a shift. Cool. We're all going to go home. It's awesome. But the moment you start your weekend, what happens? The countdown clock begins of when you have to go back to work. 72 hours, 48 hours, 24 hours. You're constantly thinking about that clock. You're jumping into the future, right? Always thinking about it. And then, you know, it's 12 hours until I have to go back to work. You're laying in bed. Man, I got four hours left and I got to go back to work. What happened to your weekend? It's gone. Because you were so focused on when you have to go back to work. That's called living in the past. Then you get to work right? You load up your patrol car. What do you start thinking of? Well, for me, I started thinking about when I was clocking out on that Friday, 
and I was going to start my weekend. I wish it was, and there the thought came in, I wish it was Friday again so I could start my weekend. Right? How insane is that? If we repeated that process all the time, I wish it was Friday again, we'd never progress, right? But that's how I was starting my work week in a depressed state because I wanted it to be Friday again. So then I go to briefing, I hit the streets. What am I thinking about now? Well, now I'm thinking about how many days until my weekend begins. Four days, right? I'm jumping into the future again. So what am I doing? I'm constantly jumping back and forth and I'm not in the present moment. Is part of that though just human nature as opposed to trauma-related experiences? Because aren't all of us to a degree, we come to work on Monday and we're like, uh, I've got to go to Friday till I got my weekend. Oh yeah, absolutely. That's just uh, human nature, right? Um, we, you know, <laughs> we stress when we will carry stress with us. Animals out there, you know, uh, a, a, a gazelle that gets chased by a by a lion gets away. You know, is that gazelle going to carry that stress with them forever? Oh, yeah. What they do is when they're safe, they get away. They shake it out. They, you know, they, 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 just un- they just release all of that negativity, and then they go, they go about life again, right? We, instead of shaking it out from us, we just carry it with us. Right. We bottle it up, right, until that bottle gets too full and it overflows, and, you know, we have a, a, an explosion or an implosion, if you will, um, and we'll carry this with us. Why, 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 why am I going to carry all these negative experiences with me for years? How is that going to serve me? You see what I'm saying? Um, and so we have to be aware when we're jumping into the past or into the future. And so for me, I found myself doing that. I, I started to recognize. And so then I'd say, stop, stop. And the moment I would say that I actually visualize like a, like a, like a needle right here, like a gauge, right? And my visually, I would visualize if I was thinking too much of the past, I would see my needle go this way. And the moment I would see it go this way, I'd say stop. And then the needle would go right back center, meaning I'm now in the present moment. If it started going this way, I knew I was thinking about the future, like paying bills, having to go back to work, stop. And then I would bring it back here. So that helped me, that visualization actually helped me to stay present. Because, you know, I found myself at my kid's soccer game. You know, he's seven years old. He's playing soccer. I love watching my son play soccer, you know, and, and because he's having fun out there. And I, I caught myself a few times thinking about when do I have to go back to work? And so what's happening there? I'm now going into the future. I'm no longer present here with my son, right? And how many of the, how often do we do that, right? Will we take our kids to the park to go play or what have you? But our minds aren't at the park with the kids. Our minds are at work or our minds are somewhere else that's not serving us. How so, much do you think it or how important is it to identify? So you're sitting at your, your son's soccer game. You start thinking about, oh, I've got to go back to work in 10 hours, 12 hours. Is it just merely in my mind what I'm thinking about is I don't want to go to work in 12 hours because I'm I'm. I'm losing time with my family or I'm losing, I'm losing the ability to do what I'm doing right now, as opposed to, I don't want to go to work in 10 or 12 hours because when I'm at work, I'm afraid I'm scared. I'm, I, I'm reliving all of, are you kind of following with what I'm saying? Is it, is the trauma of being able of worrying about going back to work because of what you've experienced at work 
or losing what you're able to do right now? Does that make a difference? You know, I, I think it does individually. You know, I, I can't blanket make a blanket statement that everybody's going through this. But what you're doing, regardless of what the meaning is of why you're thinking about work, you're still thinking about work. You're still thinking about a future event. So what is that creating? Anxiety. anxiety. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, if, if you're fearful about, you know, work, you know, about getting killed, about, uh, you know, getting fired, whatever, the, whatever the, the case might be, get down to it. What is that fear based off of? What created that? You know, because when, when my, my friend Eric was killed on a traffic stop, there were, I, I heard that there were several patrol officers who were kind of questioning if they wanted to stay, right? They were kind of fearful that that could happen to them, right? And, you know, for me, I could live in that constant state of fear or because I, you know, I think differently sometimes in, in terms of if I'm afraid that I'm going to get shot on a traffic stop, I'm not going to like ignore doing, I'm not going to like not do traffic stops. Right. What I'm going to do is I'm going to work on my tactics. I'm going to work on my shooting, on my drawing technique. I'm going to visualize uh, going up and, and doing a traffic stop. And, and, you know, if that door cracks open, the moment I recognize that, what do I do? Well, you move out of the way, right? Draw your weapon, move out of the way. You know, so make yourself more tactical, right? Because, I mean, you can live in fear if you want, but, you know, it, good luck making it to retirement. And I don't want to bottle it all under fear because I honestly believe there's not a single one of us who doesn't hit the street, doesn't do our job. If you're doing it without a little bit of fear, those are the ones I'm more concerned about. But what I'm getting at is the importance of identifying what's causing the anxiety. Whatever it is, is that that's causing the apprehension, address that. So like you said, if it's a fear of, of traffic stops or a shooting, then improve your tactics as opposed to trying to just merely bottle the anxiety. Does that yeah, make sense? It makes total sense. And, and, you know, how many officers are out there bottling that anxiety? How many officers fear that, uh, fear that traffic stop? And, and it's like, we, you, you, you've got to empower. This is what I like about coaching is we work with clients to empower them. We don't tell them what to do. We don't give them solutions. We guide them so they can come up with their own solution, right? So they can figure that out because it's so empowering to them. And by the way, they know what they need to do. When a client comes to us and says, uh, I don't, you know, I, I, I want to promote, right? I don't know what to do. No, you do know what to do. Your subconscious knows exactly what you need to do. It's just your conscious, which is your ego, needs to talk to your subconscious, right? And, and it goes with fear as well. Why do, do I have a fear of this, right? And, you know, a good example, I'm a hypnotherapist. And uh, I had a, a businessman come to me one day. And he said uh, he'd been working with a psychiatrist for two years. This businessman was getting anxiety, anxiety like uh, he would have nervous breakdowns. Uh, in traffic, if he was if 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 he was on the freeway and it gridlocked, he would just have a panic attack. So much so that he had to pull over, call his wife to come pick him up. He created this imaginary boundary in the valley where if he went outside of this boundary, he would just go into panic mode, right? Which is not good when you're a businessman. And and I walked through his his well, business. especially if you can't conduct your business in that in that grid pattern. Exactly. Right. And, and he walked me through his business and he's got it locked down super tight. I mean, it is, it is legit, you know, a million dollar business. Right. And 
So I asked him, so he came to me one day and, and he asked if I could help him. One of the first questions I ask any client is, are you working with a psychiatrist or a counselor? Please get there okay, uh, because I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, get in their way, undo anything that they've done. Because psychiatry, counseling, that's a completely different animal. So uh, he said he had been working with a, a psychiatrist for two years, and he doesn't, he didn't feel like he's been making any gains from it. So I asked him, you know, what, what is the, What's, what's the issue? And he told me the panic attacks. He don't know. He doesn't know what's going on. So I asked him point blank, what do you think it is? What do you think is causing it? And, you know, I always get this. I don't know. And I, I reframed it and I said, um, well, if you did know, what would it be? Right. And he was still, you know, kind of, you know, hesitant, but the subconscious knows exactly why this is happening. Right. And that's what I explained to him. Your subconscious knows exactly what's happening. So what I had him do uh, is that night before he went to bed, I told him, I want you just to relax, uh, lay in a nice quiet place. Could be your bed, could be your couch, wherever. And I want you to ask yourself, what is causing this anxiety? And whatever comes to mind, write it down. I don't care if it's a color. I don't care if it's a shape. I don't care if it's a memory, a name, doesn't matter. Write it down. Even if it seems insignificant, write it down. It may not make sense to you at that moment, but it might make sense to you the next day. And so he did. He did that. Next day, he, he calls me, and he's just overly excited. He goes, I figured it out. I go, okay, I mean, what's, what's happening? He goes, well, when I was dating my wife, we were, you know, we were four-wheeling out in the desert, and I, I went over this embankment, rolled, and, you know, a boulder stopped us. Otherwise, we would have continued and probably would have died. But we broke pretty much every bone in our body. And fortunately, there were other four-wheelers out there that saw us. They came and they helped us. That, that moment of when I was, when we, when we fell, half a second or a second, whatever you want to call it, he goes, that is what's causing this. Because remember, he's a businessman and he's a very controlling, he's got his, his ship nice and tight. He didn't have control at that moment when, when they were falling and rolling, he didn't have control of his life and, and the life of his, somebody that he loves. And because of that, it just resurfaced years later. Right. And, and what caused it to resurface? I don't know. And so I said, okay, now that you know what is causing this, now you go to your psychiatrist and now you talk to him about that. Right. And, and, He's been great ever since, right? Um, and I believe he told me, well, it's funny because when I asked him, uh, what, what is causing this, right, originally? He goes, well, my psychiatrist said, and I stopped him. I go, no, no, no. <laughs> I don't want to know what your psychiatrist thinks. What do you think? Because that's what's important. And as a hypnotherapist, that is what we focus on is the, the subconscious. Let's get to the root of the issue, right? So... Uh, that's just an example, you know, with, with uh, hypnotherapy. I didn't even put him under. I just had him do this technique, and, and it, it worked for him. You bring up two points. The first one I want to address is family members. So, like, in this gentleman's story, his, his loss of control to protect his wife. From your experience, and obviously you're not a psychiatrist, so I just want your opinion. How do we talk to, the, to our spouses and our family members 
about the trauma that we're experiencing without bringing that trauma to them. Does that make sense? It makes total sense. And, and that's my opinion. That right there is part of the reason that we have such a high rate of divorce because we don't communicate with our significant other when we go home. Our significant other, we, you walk in the door, your significant other asks you, hey, honey, how was your day? Fine, good. And, and so why, now we got to look at it from both viewpoints. You know, your significant other looks at it like, oh, he doesn't want to talk to me anymore. Uh, he's isolating himself. He doesn't love me anymore, right? You are looking at it like, I just gave CPR to a dead baby. I don't want to traumatize my wife because I love my wife and I'm going to do everything I can to protect her, right? So you don't want to give any inkling what you, what you went through. So you're going to say it was fine, right? Not realizing that with, you know, throughout the years, it's creating that rift and you guys are drifting apart, right? If she would have known you're just doing that to protect her, how would she have felt at that point, right? So it, it comes, you know, you, you, when you get, and I tell new officers this, you, you must sit down with your significant other and let them know, hey, there's going to be some times where I'm going to deal with some stress, I'm going to deal with some really bad things that I don't want to bring home to you. Um, is it okay if I share some of this stuff with you? If it's not, I'll find somebody else. But that's the key. Find somebody to talk to about it, right? Because there's nothing wrong with, hey, honey, you know, it was a rough day. I had a really bad call. Um, I don't really want to traumatize you. But I'm going to talk to my buddy, you know, about it right here, you know. Um or if she says, no, I, I want to hear about it. Okay. Well, she's a grown, grown person. Talk to each other about it. Right. Uh, you, you might not want to go into all the graphic details with her, but you know, uh, but don't make the decision for them. No. Don't make the decision for your family member to spare them, you know, cause they may want, they may not want the gory details, but they are interested in you and your ability to talk about it obviously is going to help in the long run. Yeah, exactly. Because now at least it gives them uh, an understanding of what you went through that day. You're not doing it because you're not in love with that person anymore, right? If they know, okay, you had a really bad call, I get it. They're probably going to give you your space. They're probably going to, you know, uh, see what they can do to make you more comfortable while you're there. But if you just go in and say, eh, it was fine, and they know absolutely nothing what's happening, you're going to get them upset. And eventually, like I said, that's when the, 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 the separation starts to happen. And it happened to me with my, with my ex-wife. Uh, you know, I, I was, a, again, I was a homicide detective, and I would never talk to her about any of this stuff. And I, in order for me to get, so now I'm, I'm a new dad, right? Now any investigation dealing with, death investigation dealing with children really, really affected me big time. Um, which to me, that was so strange because I, you know, I was able to do that a majority of my career until my son was born. Now, all of a sudden, the landscape, my perspective shifted, right? I'm no longer the same guy I was a few years ago. I'm different now. I've evolved, and I'm a human being. It happens, right? Kids will change your perspective on life. Absolutely. And that's the that's thing, you know, you start to, th you're not so like undercover work. I, you know, it wasn't a, a big deal for me to go meet, you know, cartel members in the desert, you know, along the border. Now, now that I have a son and I've got responsibility, I don't think I would do that now, you know, but so what I did was because it, it made me so emotional at these scenes, I didn't want to, I didn't want to show any emotion, right? Because I got to remain professional, right? And, and that's what police officers, what we do. We're able to, uh, 
mask our emotions to, in order to get through a scene, right? Most people won't even look towards that way because of, you know, all the, the, the gross stuff that's happening, but we will, we go towards that, right? And we got to put our emotions in check, right? In order to get through that scene, well, when you're a, a detective and you're on call, you know, being, you know, you're going to get called out for all kinds of stuff when you're doing death investigations. It could be suicide. It could be accidental death, homicide. You know, when you're on call, like what I found myself doing was number one, I got emotional at a call, uh, a baby, uh, the death of a baby. And in, in the, you know, I'm a new dad. I got grieving parents here, young parents and, and a, a baby that's right here. That's, that's dead. So what do I do as a human being? I start putting myself in their place with my kid, right? And the dad side of me started to to tear up. And I'm like, whoa, 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 can't do that. I'm on duty. I'm in the public eye. I have a job to do, right? But I viewed that as weakness. I started to get emotional. So what I created for myself was this robot persona. No feeling, no emotion, no nothing. So when I go to these scenes, nothing will affect me. And it worked. It worked. Until you start carrying that away from the scenes. Bam, right there, you hit it. It was great at the scene, but I carried it with me home, right? And I forgot to, I couldn't figure out how to turn it off. Especially when you're on call. If you're on call for three days, that phone's going to ring. And you're waiting for that phone to ring. So you never, that robot persona is always there. Because it has to be because yeah, I'm going to get called out. And I, I couldn't figure out how to turn it off. And I didn't even know I was doing it, that I was becoming cold. And so what happens, me and my wife, we started to drift apart. And uh, now we're divorced. You know, And the, we have a great relationship now. We respect each other. We co-parent great. Um, you know, had I recognized that sooner, yeah, absolutely, I, I could have done something about it. Uh, but the damage has been done. Right. So the, the, the emotional side of it, we got to be really careful about, you know, yes, we got to get through this tough scene, but what are you doing after the scene? You know, that's, what's important. How do you relieve that stress? How do you alleviate that stress? Right? Because most people don't do anything. They just, you know, they go, they investigate. Here's the thing about investigating these scenes. You are being traumatized multiple times. I notice, I recognize this, right? So you get the call out. Your your boss tells you, "Hey, we got a, a, a death investigation of a of a kid over here." You know, whatever the circumstances are, explains it to you. Okay, so now you're visualizing it. What what's happened up there, right? So then you arrive on scene. You speak to the on scene commander, and then the 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 first officers on scene. They give you what they saw. Again, you're creating it up here. Then you go and you walk the scene. Now you're looking at everything and, and the body is still there. You're looking at all of that, right? Again, you're, you're in, in taking all this information. You talk to witnesses. They tell you what happened leading up to that. Then uh, they, they transport the body. You go do an autopsy. Now you're viewing the autopsy, but you're not finished yet. Because now you got to type the report up. So you go to your desk, you pull up all the photos of the autopsy of the scene, and now you're typing your report, and you're and you're always uh, uh, 
looking at different photographs, listening to witness statements. So you're constantly over and over re-traumatizing yourself when you're listening to this stuff. And you may not think anything of it, but it is causing some kind of uh, emotional reaction within you. And you're, mo- you're just, you know, I, I noticed that when I, was, when I was doing this stuff. It's like, man, I get to hear about it. I get to see it. I get to view the autopsy. And then I get to go do it all over again when I'm typing my report out. Right? And I can even zoom in on injuries and stuff like that. So I didn't realize that I'm repeatedly creating these, these traumas within me for, for one case. Well, and the crazy thing to think about is, for me, and one of the things I've always thought about, the writing it for us. If you think back to when you were a kid in, high, in, in elementary school, how did your teacher reinforce you to remember something? Write it 500 times. You're not going to forget it. Yeah. You, I'm not taking anything away from seeing the trauma. But when we actually have to sit there and type that report out and pull all of that detail from our head and put it on paper, in, in my opinion, all it's doing is just ingraining it and, and settling it in deep in our brain. Yeah. And, and the thing about the, you know, your, your, your mind and your subconscious, it can't differentiate the difference between fantasy and reality. So by you going and walking the scene, you, we have to figure out what happened. We recreate the, what happened, the event, right? 20 years from now, if you think about it, how different is it if you were actually there and viewed it firsthand, like the actual crime versus you replaying it in your head, what happened? It's the same thing, right? Right. It can't distinguish the difference between reality and fantasy, right? So you're still going to experience the physiological uh, occurrences that happen when you're dealing with that kind of stress, right? And so we, sometimes we don't realize that, but we will we'll bottle it up, we keep it, and then we go home and we never do anything about it, right? Um, after I had retired, I had a, a, a friend of mine who was in sex crimes, and you know she sent me a text about she had a really bad case, and one of the things, and so she just needed to vent, right? And I asked her, are you going to talk to somebody about it? You know, I'm a mental health professional and she didn't even think about it. And I'm like, well, you know, something to think about. There's nothing wrong with going and talking to a psychiatrist about it. Uh, one, it's off site. Two, I mean, it's my opinion in the long run, it's good to, to vent it out. To If you want to cry in there, cry. Nobody's going to know anything that's happening. Um, but whenever you, you deal with a really, really stressful, significant event like that, talk to somebody about it. You know, and, and don't be ashamed to, to, to just speak about what your experience. How did you feel about that? Because I think now, well, throughout my career, it was don't talk, don't say anything, don't share your experiences. And throughout my career, I experienced it myself. I saw people taking medical retirements for post-traumatic stress. Um, and it's just a sad thing. It's like, could... Could you have gotten through it? You know what I mean? Uh, when I was at the height of, of going through that, I would explain it to people who, who had never experienced post-traumatic stress. It's like, it's like having a monkey on your back, right? You can jump on a plane and go to the most uh, beautiful place, most calm, uh, peaceful place on the planet. But the moment you get off that plane, guess what? That monkey's still on your back. So it doesn't matter where you go. Until you deal with, with what's on you, it's never going to go away. 
you know, in law enforcement, what I've seen is we're going to, we're going to hold off our happiness until we retire, right? I'll be happy when I retire because retirement's going to bring about happiness, right? And so we're willing to put it off. And then we hit retirement and guess what? You're not happy. Why? Because it never had anything to do with retirement. It had to do with you, the individual. Not having a life outside of work, not having something to, to look forward to post-retirement. Exactly, right? Why, why would you hold off happiness for 20 years? You could have been happy throughout that 20 years. That's the thing. You can be happy being a police officer. It is possible. You don't have to put it off for some date because I guarantee you, you reach that date, nothing's going to change because it doesn't have anything to do with the external the external is not what makes us happy. It's the internal. It starts with us. Happiness begins here. And we, we tend to think, well, if I promote, I'll be happy. If I uh, go into a specialty unit, I'll be happy. You know what? If I go to another agency, I'll be happy. And then they get there and what happens? They still have the same issues. They still have the same problems because they never worked on themselves. So it's got nothing to do with going to another department. Every department has their own issues, their own political issues and what have you. The problem that you've now created is now you've got to start from the bottom up again, right? Now you've got to start in, in, in graveyard shift if you like day shift, right? You've got to earn your seniority. And, and guess what? You're still not feeling better. So what I tell officers is focus on you, the individual. Because I, I, pro- I know what probably happened is you're focusing on everybody else. You want, you want to make sure everybody else is happy because that's what we do as, as police officers. We put everybody else's needs first and then ours comes second. And it's like, no, no, your needs come first because if you're good, you can take care of your family. I always use the analogy of when we get onto an airplane, what's the first thing they do in the safety briefing? When the mask falls, whose mask should we put on first? Yours or your kids? Put yours on first because you, you aren't any good to anybody else if you can't take care of yourself first. Exactly. On a traffic stop. If, if you go and, and let, let's just say you pull a car over and you have the SWAT team, they're all riding on the skids of the SWAT truck. They just finished an op and they're driving back to the station, but they see you doing a traffic stop. So they figured out, oh, let's back, let's back Paul up since we're already here anyway, they're all tacked up. They've got all their, all their gear on. And so you see them, that's a good feeling, right? Like, yeah, you know, if something happens, they're here to help me. But as you're walking up to that patrol car, the driver gets out with a gun and points it at you. What do you do? Do you say, oh, wait. The SWAT team is far more equipped to handle this. I'm going to wait for them to dismount and, and deal with this. Or are you going to take care of it yourself? Right? That's the mentality we need to have when it comes to health and wellness is we need to take the ownership. We need to work on ourselves first because you're not going to wait on that traffic stuff. You're not going to wait for your backup to get there to deal with it. You're going to deal with it right there because you have to. If you don't, you may not survive that encounter. What's the difference? What's the difference when you're dealing with your, your mental and emotional wellness? If you're waiting for somebody to come in to save the day for you, that day may never come. You got to take ownership and you got to take that, that initiative to figure out what is going on. And that's what it took for me, but I had to hit rock bottom and it took me years of, of dealing with this stuff of to create these techniques, but I have them now. We've got our coaching uh, program, our coaching company, and it's years of just going through this that helps. So now, hopefully, you know, officers that are out there don't have to go through what I went through and, and, and it takes them years. If, if I can give them something that helps them right now, today, cool, awesome. You know, and then they can take it. They can take it from there. 
they can do whatever they want with these with these techniques. We've talked about retirement. What prompted you to choose to retire at 23 years? Uh, to get into coaching. So I, I uh, partnered up with a, a friend of mine who's a fellow officer. He retired. And, uh, you know, my girlfriend, she's also a hypnotherapist, life coach, Reiki master. Uh, she grew up in a law enforcement family. Her dad was a deputy sheriff. And so she understood the the uh, law enforcement family aspect of it, the dynamics. Did your, excuse me for interrupting, did your partner go through similar levels of trauma experience in his career? Uh, yeah, he did, as a matter of fact, because uh, our, our paths were very similar. That's why we... we we're good friends. Right. And he, you know, uh, he's really big into church and, and family and, and all that big, he's got a big family and we're about the same age, but mine, I didn't have a big family and, and I really wasn't into, into the church like he was. So we're slightly different, but we're very similar. Um, but he, he really brought in the, the physical fitness aspect of it. Right. Whereas myself and, and uh, Tammy Sharp, we, uh, you know, I brought in my experiences, right, of just being in there. And, and Tammy brings in the, the hypnotherapy side, the coaching side, the, the, uh, the Reiki side, and then the family dynamics. She saw what it did to her dad. And then, you know, on top of my experience, I bring in, because I'm a hypnotherapist, a life coach, and, and a yoga instructor as well. So I bring all those elements into, into our coaching program. So we got together. And uh, we created this coaching platform where we train coaches from all over the nation and various experience levels. You know, there are police chiefs, they all the way and active duty police chiefs, retired police chiefs, command level. We had detectives, patrol officers, um, and we had some civilians that were psychiatrists. And so we trained them on the coaching principles specifically for law enforcement. So you're training them to take that training back to their organizations to benefit their officers within yeah. their organization? Yeah. So we created this platform where, you know, if an agency wanted to contract with us, uh, you know, they would have access to 35 coaches, right? And so, but those coaches who are active duty, yeah, you, you can take it to your, your agency as well. Like, you know, absolutely share it, you know, because this is what's helping people. So uh, we and and we met some really really good people, and the level of experience that some of these these officers had, I was just like, wow, this is whoa, this is these these people know what they're doing, right? You know, in the law enforcement field, and so we created that, and uh, now we are we are focusing on getting our message out there, our coaching message, to help our officers get to retirement, but not just get to retirement, enjoy your retirement afterwards. You know, I want to live to be a hundred so I can reap the benefits of my pension, right? I want to get every penny out of it uh, because it, what's the average rate when we, when we uh, retire, it's what, five to seven years? I was going to say five if we're lucky. Yeah. And, and we died. And I think part of that is one, our, our passion when we retire, because I had a fear of retiring. Even that was going to be one of my follow-up questions. Even though I had this in place, you know, there's always that fear. Can I exist without being officer so-and-so or detective so-and-so, you know, whatever the case might be. 
And 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 that's like that's that's just really big on the ego. And I always told young officers, this is not who you are. You know, you are not officers. You know, so and so. Forty hours a week, you are. You're just so and so. Yeah. When you go home, this is who you are, right? Even though I preached that, I taught that, right? And then Isn't I had it always few, easier to tell others. It is. <laughs> it, it really is. And and so I had this anxiety. Could I exist without being a being a police officer? Much like when I was a teenager, right? It was nice to throw out a name, you know, and people back off, you know. I I needed them for me. Kind of like now, I needed this. Do I need this to exist? And and it was scary. I'm not gonna lie. It was it was a scary moment for me because that's my most of my adult life was in law enforcement. I got hired when I was 21. So uh, the 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 message I want to say is yes, there is life after retirement, and it's great. Um, I don't regret retiring at all, and I think part of it is because I had a retirement ceremony. Initially, I di- wasn't going to do a ceremony. I was just like, you know, give me my gun. I'll just, you know, uh, fade away into the darkness. You'll never see me again. And that's really how I felt. And then Tammy was like, no, you need to have a retirement. You did, you put in all this work and you need that day for you. Because we're big on celebrating, celebrating your moments, right? And to be honest with you, part of me, the reason why I kind of didn't want to do it because I didn't think anybody would show up. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's my ego right there. Cause it's like, you know, I'm sure you're not the only one who's I, ever thought that that's the thing, you know? And so because of that, I was willing to say, no, 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 I don't want a retirement. Fortunately, Tammy talked me into doing the retirement and it was the best. All of my, my friends, my family, my coworkers were there. People that I hadn't seen in years came, right? The police officers, when I was a kid, that, you know, I would always have encounters with, they showed up, right? And uh, because we became coworkers when I first got hired and they retired shortly after. And it was just a great moment. They were sharing funny stories. But the what I learned about that experience was it was an opportunity for my family, my, my son, my ex-wife, she was there, uh, my father-in-law, uh, Tammy's family. They got to see what, what my life was like at work because I never brought it home, right? Because I was always trying to protect my family. So the, the retirement ceremony really wasn't for me. It was for them. It was their opportunity to see why I wasn't there on birthdays, why I wasn't there on holidays, why I was working late night, overnight, all the time, right? They got an opportunity to see it and to hear directly from the people that I worked with, right? Because they made a slideshow and they showed photos from throughout the years, and it was just a great event. So what my recommendation, if you are nearing retirement, you're going to retire, please do the ceremony. Do it for your family. Let them celebrate with you and let them see the you at work. It's so important. And, and for command level people, it's so important that you attend these ceremonies and honor the officers that you commanded. And, and that is so, you know, the mayor of, of, of the town I'm from, she attended. Busy lady. and But yet she made time to be there and to say some kind words. And I thought, oh, my God, I don't even really know her very well. I met her one time at an event. and But it showed the leadership that she took time. And, and think about that. The best supervisors out there that you have ever worked for, 
You know, what do they all share in common? They care about you. And when you, when somebody cares about you, you'll be loyal and you'll do everything you can to make them look good, right? Because you, you, you love them, right? You'll go, you'll go anywhere, you know, where, 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 you know, doesn't matter. So it, it, so for command level supervisors, I'd say show up to those, especially if you're a chief, you know, assistant chief, all of you show up to those, show respect to those officers because they deserve it. How long before your retirement did you and your partner put your new company in place? And were you already doing that type of work? Were you already doing the training classes before you retired? Yeah. Yeah, I was I was a year into it. And, and part of the reason I retired too is because I needed to devote 100% of my time to this. I couldn't, uh, you know, I... I if you're going to get into something, you've got to get into it 100%. Because if you don't, you know, you lessen the likelihood of, of showing success. So I needed to focus on that. Otherwise, 40 hours a week, you know, minimum 40 hours a week, I'm out of pocket. I can't work on our on our business, right? So I had to make that decision. So having something, and I'll use the analogy of quitting law enforcement on Friday, but having that new mission to go to full-time on Monday was a huge benefit to you. Absolutely. It was um, because you got to understand for 20 plus years, we created a, a, a pattern for ourselves of we, we need to be someplace at this time, right? Because it, it, it's, we got to feel productive. And one of the things that I noticed uh, during this whole process, excuse me for a second. Sorry, edit one. that. <laughs> one of the things I noticed about this whole process, when we were recruiting coaches, uh, and we just Facebooked it out there, right? And and we noticed that retired officers contacted us, and they loved the whole concept, they loved the idea, right? And they'd been retired for a few years, and the commonality between all of them was they after retirement they couldn't find something to do, you know. At the beginning of my career, the, the older veterans would always joke, when I retire, I'm going to become a doorman at Walmart. Why? Because they don't have to think, right? How, do you know how many of those retired, retirees are working at Walmart now? None. That's not a successful retirement plan. <laughs> no, because here's the thing. You must have passion and purpose when you retire, right? Law enforcement gives us the passion and purpose. So when you retire, if you don't have anything that's going to give you passion and purpose, you kind of just wander. And that's what we notice with these retired officers. And, and re, of all levels, you know, uh, command level even, they just couldn't find anything to do. They don't want to take any old job, you know, it, it, wherever. It needs to be, they need to have purpose. They need to have passion. So when they heard about coaching, it reignited that passion they had, that they once had. And, they were, and literally, they were wandering for years. Some of them even talked about they went into a depression after retiring, right? That's why it's so important to find what is what what means something to you right and so when they heard about coaching it reignited that passion they loved the whole idea because it brought them back into the law enforcement world just in a different capacity and and think about it these are men and women that found that magic formula of how to get through an entire career and retire right why wouldn't we want to use their experience to help younger officers or officers who are still active duty right what worked for these people might work for some of them, especially those who are struggling to get through the career. So that was one of the pleasantries that we noticed, you know, when we when we recruited uh, some of our officers or some of our coaches. 
Um, but yeah, having, having that mission of creating this coaching business, that was big for me because if I had not, if I didn't have that, yeah, I would, I would, I would, I think I, I probably would have fallen into some kind of depression, right? Because I need to have passion and purpose. For you, even though you had that mission, that new mission, did you ever have a period of regret or man, I shouldn't have retired? No, not at all. And you know, th- that was one of the fears too, if I would regret it at some point and no, because I am so focused on, on our new mission of helping police officers. But not only that, sh- seeing the results that we were having, you know, the, the officers who were, who were, uh, the, you know, who use our coaching services, just listening to them and, and how it helped them. It's like, yeah, I'm on the right path here. I, I know this is what I was meant to do at this point in my life. Because the way I look at it is from the day you were born, like a timeline, day you were born, day you die. For me, law enforcement represents right about here, right? It, it served its purpose for me. It gave me experience. It gave me credibility. Uh, it gave me a pension, Right. I met some great people, but it served its purpose. Now I've got all this left in my timeline to do whatever I want to do. And if it's coaching, if it's hypnotherapy, if it's, you know, uh, you know, regular life coaching yoga, you know, I'm a yoga instructor. I could do any of those, you know, and I got all this timeline to work with. But you, but tying back into what you said earlier, don't live your life in that. I used to be, you know, you, you talk about, I used to think back to my first search warrant as a narc detective and that was impacting my current day career. Same thing. You're now retired. Don't live your life as I used to be officer so-and-so. Yeah, exactly. Right? Because that person existed at one time. You're no longer that person. You've actually evolved from that person. Right? You, you haven't gone backwards. You've actually gained the experience of an officer who went through an entire career. You know, if you're, if you're one of our coaches. Yeah, for me, that's how I look at it. I utilize my experiences to help today. Anybody who's watching this, I hope I say something that's going to trigger something that's going to help you today. That's going to help you get through your shift today if you're struggling. For your company, or I'm going to take a step back a little bit. We often hear the term life coach. Can you explain exactly what a life coach is? So a a life coach helps you to... uh, if you become stagnant in your life, they, they help to, to give you motivation, right? They help you with goal setting as well. And so what we did, um, it, it, and it, we, they act as kind of like a sounding board as well, right? So if you need a vent, you can vent to a, to a coach. But a coach, a life coach does not, they're not going to tell you, you need to do this. You need to do X, Y, Z, and you're going to feel better. No, no, no. They will guide you to where you need to go. But ultimately, you're doing the work. Right. So what we did is, you know, we're, we're life coaches, but we, we brought in the law enforcement aspect of it. You know, we don't use all the the stuff that we learned in life coaching as part of this, because some of it's just not conducive for law enforcement, but we use the principles of it. And so as a, as a law enforcement coach, you know, we work on, we work with clients and it could range anywhere from, you know, uh, career advancement, you know, or, uh, you know, things that are happening in their personal life they want to work on, or they feel stagnant, right? And so, or they, maybe they want to achieve some goals that they've never had. You know, somebody, maybe somebody wants to lose some weight. 
and they just never could do it. You know, so they, they, they get a coach and we help create an action plan for them. Uh, we get down to the, to the root of what is it that you want? You know, what is your ultimate goal here? And, and through creating that action plan, it creates accountability for, the, for you, you know, for you as a client, if you were a client. Um, I'm not going to be calling you every day. Hey, did you do this? Hey, did you do that? You know, no, no, no. Because the accountability, it's all on you. If you really want this, you're going to do it. We'll meet once a week and I'm going to ask you how your week was. Did you accomplish your mini goals that ultimately are going to lead to your main goal? And if you didn't, why didn't you? You know, why didn't you do what you say you would do? So this is the thing with police officers is when we say we're going to do something, we do it, right? Because it comes down to integrity. This is what I love working with law enforcement. You know, when I have a client, they say they're going to do something. I don't, I don't ever have to doubt it. They're going to do it, right? And if they don't do it, usually they have good reason for it. But it's all about that accountability. And uh, sometimes some officers question, and we, we've been getting this for the past year, they question whether or not they should stay in this profession because of all the negativity they've been seeing on the news. Um, you know, uh, their, their significant other has fearful for them, right? And so they begin to question, is this really the right thing for me? You know, and so as a, as a law enforcement coach, we talk it out with them. And, and we look at the big picture, not just what's happening here, but the bigger picture, right? Uh, you know, one of the uh, the techniques that, that we teach about is, you know, we call it the, the new car theory, right? When you buy a new car, what happens? The moment you, you drive off the lot with your new car, you start to see that car everywhere, right? It's just, if you bought a, a, a black Chevy truck, the moment you hit the road, that's all you're going to focus on. You're going to be like, hey, there's my truck. Hey, there's my truck again. But you never noticed it before. But now all of a sudden you noticed it, right? Why? Because now it means something to you, right? So in, in law enforcement, it's really important that we, that we figure out that be careful how you start your day. If you start your day with a negative attitude and you say, I hate my job, people are jerks. Well, your subconscious from the hypno side of me, your subconscious is listening and your subconscious does not want to make you into a liar. So what does it do? Throughout your shift, it's going to look for everything to make that statement true. I hate my job. People are jerks. So, for example, if you did 10 traffic stops, nine of those stops, you had great encounters with the public. As a matter of fact, you got compliments from the drivers. They said, officer, thank you for your, for your commitment. I'm going to pay this ticket because out of respect for you. But then you do that 10th traffic stop, and the guy gives you an attitude calls you every name in the book, says they're going to file a complaint against you. If you start your day saying, I hate my job, people are jerks, what becomes representative of your shift that day? That, that one, one traffic, yeah, that one traffic stop. So then you go home, your significant other asks you, hey, how was your day? People are jerks, I hate my job. I did this traffic stop, this guy gave me total attitude. And you completely forget about those nine encounters that were positive, Right? We, we that's called deletion we delete information and we're great at it we master the art of deletion and so you got to be careful you don't do that but you're setting yourself up if that's how you start your day and you tell yourself i hate my job people are jerks because again your subconscious does not want to make you into a liar how do you feel about liars are you friends with liars do you do your friends are they liars no we don't 
especially in law enforcement, we don't lie, right? Because if we lie, what happens? We get Brady listed. We get fired. It all comes down to integrity. So if you make a statement like that, I hate my job, people are jerks. Your subconscious says it's trying to protect you. And now it's going to look for everything to make that possible, make that statement true, thinking that it's actually protecting you, but it's not right. So you got to have that self-awareness not to focus on that negative. Don't delete all those good people, all those great encounters that we have. So in today's police world, unfortunately, a lot of our officers are, are focusing on the negative. They turn the news on and it, you know, defund the police. So that becomes representative of society for some of these officers. And it's like, no, 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 no. That's not representative of society. It's an extremely small minority. Exactly. Right. But you have to have that self-awareness. Because there are officers that think that. They think, oh, everybody thinks that way. I don't want to do this job anymore because everybody hates me. Right? Unfortunately, there are some people that think that way. And it's like, no, no, there's good people out there. And, and you're doing a great service by putting that badge on, putting that uniform on, and going out there. So that's one of the, the, the again, it comes to self-awareness when we work with our clients. Um, you know, we're never going to tell a client if they're questioning quitting, you know, resigning, or, you know, we're not going to tell them, oh, yeah, you need to resign, you know, or you need to stay. No, no, no. That's not our job. That's not our position to do that. It's on the individual to decide that. We'll help them. We'll, we'll, we'll guide them. We'll give them questions, tough questions that they have to answer, you know. Um, we've worked with people that have officers that, has, that question whether or not they wanted to stay. After a few coaching sessions, they decided, no, I'm going to stay, right? So, again, and it goes back to what, what if I would have walked away those many years today, I'd probably be asking myself, could I have done it? Right. And, and don't get me wrong. Some people just, this is not the, the career for them and they want to move on to something else. Okay, cool. If that's truly what you want to do, but don't do it based off of emotion. Right. Right. So or emotion at the moment. At the moment. Yes. Yeah. Is life being a life coach, is that a specific certification? Yeah. And, yeah. and where does somebody go to get certified as a life coach? It depends. There, now, there are a lot of, I mean, you can do it online. I went to a school, uh, an accredited school that's, that's very well, well respected. Um, people actually fly uh, in to Arizona and live here temporarily just to go to the school. It's the Southwest Institute of Healing Arts. They're very, very thorough in, in, the, in the training that they give. And so... I, I need, for me, I can't do stuff online. Like I need to go and, and be in a room with somebody. And when I was going through this uh, training to be a hypnotherapist and then a, a life coach, um, it opened Do those my, two usually go hand in hand? Uh, not, not really. Okay. Um, not necessarily. They're, they're completely, they're different modalities, but they do complement each other. Right. And what I noticed when I was going through it, I kind of, I describe it to people like, I was going through law enforcement with kind of like some blinders on, you know, and then I went to this place and it allowed me to take the blinders off and to realize there's a big world out there. There's, there's like good out there in the world. It's not so black and white, good guys versus bad guys. And that's it. Cause that's kind of how I, how I kind of operated, you know? And so the moment I opened my eyes to the, the goodness that's out there in the world, um, you know, my perspective started to shift. And in, in a good way. Um, but yeah, so, um, excuse me. For the most part, for the, for the average person going through a life coaching program, what's the, the process time? 
I believe it took me a couple, uh, two or three months, and you meet twice uh, a, a, a week. Like I think I went on a Tuesday and a Thursday. This is for your in-person program. In-person program, yeah. And I forget how many hours it, it was ended up being, but you're there for like four hours each night, and and you're if you're 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 taught a, a technique, and then now you've got to go practice that technique on. On somebody in class and then uh and then you do a practicum at the very end where you bring in you know uh, somebody that you don't you're not too familiar with and you can do a coaching session with them but you're doing continuous coaching sessions as you go through so by the end you know what you're doing right so that's important especially as a as a trainer you know the hands-on is super super important uh, you know and there's all kinds of, of different you know websites that you can go to the only thing I would caution is, you know, you want to be very thorough, you know, whoever you get trained by. Um, for me, I just needed, I need the in-person, but maybe somebody doesn't have the time to do the in-person, so they'd rather do the online. Um, but there, there are many, many different companies out there that are doing it. And if I'm understanding correctly, the first responder component of your company is just a subset of it. You're not only treating or, or, or working with law enforcement agencies, correct? Yeah, that's correct. Um, well, so we work with law enforcement agencies and their families. So, because there's some agencies that will will pay uh, to have the families included in you know in, in part of that. Um, and we understand the family dynamics as well. Like it's important, you know, your your wife, your significant other. Um, so we we want to include them, but uh, other people will reach out to us as well that aren't law enforcement, and we work with whoever needs it. For those agencies, though, that want to work with you and your company, because you mentioned that you've trained representatives from organizations across the country, is it something where they have to come to you or will you go to them? To do the coaching sessions? To do the, the, the you talked about you've trained up other officers who have gone back to their organizations. Did they come to you or did you go to them for the for those training sessions? Oh, no, no. We, we created a, a training Online, you know, I'm, I'm over here saying I need it in person, <laughs> but we do it online, right? But we do, we do, we have to do it online because, you know, they're all over the country, right? And so it's a, it's a self-paced program that they, that they did. And then uh, I believe it's two practicums and then one final practicum. And the final, myself and uh, Tammy Sharp, we will monitor it. And it's all done via Zoom, you know, online. And we evaluate you as a coach, and, you know, we're, we're, you're, you're not skating through this. Like, you have to do put in the work. If you do your, your work along the way, you're going to get through the, the, the uh, practicum with no problem. If you're just, you know, trying to think you're going to skate through it, it'll show on the practicum. And there, there have been some, uh, <clears throat> some officers who were in training that didn't do so great on the, on the practicum. And I... Because I'm very, I'm, I'm very big on on the accountability side. I want our coaches to show that level of professionalism, so they can coach, they can anywhere at any time, right? And so for me, I'm I'm real strict on what I look for, and so we give you guidelines. Here's what you know what we want you to follow to make sure you hit all the important points. But ultimately, when it comes down to the actual coaching side of it, that's all on you. That's how you want to do it, right? And there were times where I you know, evaluated somebody. And I said, I think you, you know, I didn't see you do X, Y, Z, da, 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 da. 
one situation, one 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 coach commiserated with the client, and that's that's like a no no. Like no no, we can't do that. So I recommended a re a redo. They can do they can do it over again with a different client, right? We're not just gonna cut them off right there. We'll give them the opportunity to do it again. And interestingly enough, not one of them uh, redid it, right? But that but that's very telling to us. Did you really want to become a coach? Were you really committed to this? And you know, if you weren't, we don't want you as a coach, right? Because it, it does matter. Integrity matters to us and the level of professionalism that we bring. So, um, yeah, we're, we're, we're out there. We are uh, spreading our message that coaching, uh, coaching helps. For those that have not made it through your program, and I don't want to call it a deficiency, but what were their hindrances that, that they should have left at the door when they came in that, that you see? Well, one was uh, the guy, the, the obviously coach, having an interaction. Yeah, without getting into too much detail, commiserating, you know, the client because you're going to get clients who have that negative mindset, and you know maybe they they dislike their agency, and they're looking for you to back up what they're saying, right? And but you don't know anything about the agency, right? So you can't commiserate with them. You can allow them to vent, let them speak their mind, but then now start to ask them questions to start shifting their perspective. You know, I had, I had, you know, I had one client who was testing for a sergeant position and uh, he didn't get it. And he said that uh, the, another applicant got it over him, but that applicant is really good friends with them. They go fishing and they do all this stuff. So he created this story. And instead of me as a coach saying, oh man, you know, that really sucks. And you know, that I hate it when that happens. Da, 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 da. What, I'm not doing anything for my client if I do that. So instead, I, I shifted. If it. anything, you're reinforcing that negative thinking. Yes, exactly. Uh, so what I didn't. So I didn't do that. What I did was I asked him. Well, how do you know that he got that position based off of him going fishing? Did did you did somebody officially say that? Well, no. Oh well, did did he say that? Did you talk to him directly and say no? Did you talk to the command? You know, the, the person you're talking about, you know, that supervisor, did you talk to him directly and ask him about it? Well, no. Right. More importantly, did you go to command and go, why didn't I get the position? Exactly. Right. So learn from that so that you can be ready for the next opportunity. Right. So that's kind of what we do. We don't let you, you know, you, yes, we'll let you allow you to vent, but we're not going to commiserate with you. We will reshift it. What did you learn from this experience? What can you take away from this experience that's going to help you? Next time you test, right? That's what we want to focus on. And like you said, go talk to whoever was on your oral board and ask him, what did you do good? What did they like? What could you improve on? That's where the ego, you got to check your ego at the door. And that's so tough for us sometimes, right? Because we, we look at us, we think we're RoboCop, right? We're the best. We do everything great. And the reality is, no, we make mistakes. I make many, many, I've made many mistakes, right? It's all about the ego. So go and do that so that you can be prepared next time you test for sergeant. Well, and you bring up a good point about the ego. It's it's going around to your command staff, assuming using you want to promote, or even if you just want a special assignment. It's real easy to walk in and say, what do I do well? You know, it's another thing to walk in and go, what does a good supervisor do? You know, you're looking for all the positives. It's hard to walk in and go, what don't I do well enough to be a supervisor? Yeah, right. And then be open to honest critique. Yeah. 
what are you going to do with that information? Because you can take it and be like, ah, whatever. BS, complete BS. You're not going to learn. You're not going to evolve from that. So use it. Take it to heart. Right? Don't, don't let your ego get in the way because that's what we do. We always let our ego get in the way and it hinders our progress. So, yeah, that's kind of, you know, one of the things, one of the, one of the things we do as a coach. And, you know, uh, you know, if you're going to do a practicum with us, we don't want you to do a practicum with, you know, a close friend of yours or a relative. We want somebody that, uh, preferably that you don't know, right? We had one, <laughs> we had one guy uh, say that he was from a small town. And he knew everybody in the town, so he couldn't find a client to do a session on. And I'm just like, okay. So what, what that's telling me is that this individual probably has issues with communication, with, with you know, connecting with people. Because unless the town's five people, yeah. you probably don't know everybody. Well, <laughs> and here's the thing, because we give them the option. You can do a one-on-one session you know, in the same room, or you can do it via Zoom. Because that's what you're going to be ultimately doing is do it via Zoom. So do you know everybody in the United, whole United States that you can't do a Zoom call on, right? But that, send red, that sends red flags to us. Like if, if you can't take the initiative to find somebody to do a session on, you're probably not going to take the initiative that we are looking for to be a sound coach, right? So because uh, it was funny because um, one of my partners was like, well, should we just find a, a client for him? I go, no. That's part of this whole process. We, that's going to show us that he can communicate with people. And that tells me he can't. And he never did. He never did it. So, you know, little things like that, that, end up, that can end up being a big issue later on down the road. But that's quality control for us. That's, you know, what I've noticed in the private sector, we are police officers. We don't, we take for granted the level of professionalism that we have. And I noticed that in the private sector, that, you know, integrity means something to us. If we say we're going to do something, we do it and we do not lie. And unfortunately, it's not like that in the private sector. And I witnessed that firsthand. People, some people will just flat out lie to you just to make a sale, just to make some money. And it's like, no, 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 no. We're not doing that. I don't care. So I noticed that we are far more professional than a majority of those people who are out there in the private sector. It, it, it just, it was mind boggling to me. I never, I never understood that. I never figured that out. I never really looked at it like that. I just thought, ah, oh, we're cops. You know, we, you know, somebody that works for a billion dollar company, they got to be far more professional than us because, you know, they're running a billion dollar, not the case. That's not the case. This is why police officers, when they retire, companies love to hire police officers because they can trust them and they bring a level of professionalism that the average person doesn't really have, you know, and, 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 and again, the whole telling the truth thing, it, that's, that is something that we as police officers, that's, that's just normal to us to always tell the truth. Even if it gets you in trouble, it doesn't matter. And working in IA, <laughs> you know, I saw that like, you know what, if you did something wrong, admit it. If you try to lie about it, you're done. Well, that's what gets 95% of them. It's not what you did. It's the fact that you didn't own up to it and fall on the sword. Exactly. Like, just deal with it. It could, It's embarrassing or what have you, but whatever. Like, you'll survive and you'll keep your career intact. But for whatever reason, people tend to lie and then, and then they get booted. And rightfully so, because, you know, as police officers, integrity means everything to us. And if a fellow officer intentionally lies, guess what? 
we're no longer going to be friends because I can't be friends with somebody that's, that doesn't have integrity. That's so important to us. Um, yeah. So, you know, part of coaching, we bring that aspect of it as well. Every one of our coaches is vetted and uh, we hold that level. Everybody's going to be held to the same standards that we hold ourselves to when it comes to integrity. If you can't maintain those standards, we don't want to work with you. And I don't care if you're with a, a million dollar company, we're not going to work with you if you don't have that same level. Might not be good for business, <laughs> but but you know what? I'm keeping my integrity intact. And, and I learned that from day one, you know, at the AZ Post, watching those hearings and, and seeing those officers getting their certifications yanked for a lack of integrity. And throughout my career, just seeing that happen. For somebody going through your life coaching program, what kind of time frame should they anticipate? Well, we are revamping the, the program. Um, the, the company we initially, initially started with, we separated from them. And so we are now uh, revamping our curriculum. It's, 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 it's fairly the same, but uh, it'll probably be anywhere between 15 to 20 chapters that they're going to be uh, reviewing. And the same process, same thing. We're still going to be uh, utilizing the, the practicums and then the final practicum. You're going to be evaluated. Uh, we vet everybody that comes in. If you're a, a police officer, you, you got to prove, prove to us that you're a police officer. Show us your certification. Um, and we verify that you are an active, if you're active duty. Um, throughout our process, the way we vet people is we ask, we ask you certain questions. And these questions are designed to, to see, one, if you're of sound mind. Right, because if you're going through some issues that you're not, you haven't dealt with, going, you know, coaching somebody could trigger something in you, and we don't, we don't want that. Right, so that on top of, are do you really want to be a coach, or do you just want this as a, you know, for your resume, a resume builder later on? You know, these questions kind of bring that, bring that out, and and not everybody who who applies gets approved. You know, um, you know. In business, the more coaches that you create means the more money that you're going to make, right? And and the, the bigger you you appear to be, that's not a, that's not how we think. We want the best of the best, and just because you apply doesn't mean you're gonna you're gonna make it. If you're a police chief, just because you're a police chief doesn't mean you're gonna skate through it. You're gonna do exactly what everybody else has to do, and and that's by design, because if if you hold yourself and even psychiatrists as well. You know, they've got their PhD, you know, whatever they have, you know, all this, all this certification, all certifications they have, but they're still going to, if you apply for us, you're still going to do everything that we expect you to do, right? Because the reason we do that is if we have somebody with that level of experience and they say, I don't need to do that. I'm a, I'm a chief over here or I'm a psychiatrist. I'm way better than you guys. I don't need to do that. Well, that's where the red flags come in, (laughs) right? We, I'm not going to fight ego and, and waste my time with that. So, you know, that's why we make, we have them. Everybody does it. You have to earn your place on our team. And nobody is given instant credibility. You, 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 I mean, that's what makes the team so strong, so cohesive. And, you know, it's going to take us some time to build it to, you know, where we get hundreds of coaches. But I guarantee you, any one of our coaches is solid. And, and we'll be able to help anyone at any point, any, anywhere. With the coaching aspect of it, I want to make it clear, this is not psychiatry. It's not counseling. Um, officers come to us because, you know, again, 
maybe they want help with career development, personal development, uh, goal setting, or they just want to vent. They experienced something. Uh, we had this one happen. A, um, a, uh, a supervisor on a, on a coaching practicum, right? Uh, the coach was connected with this supervisor. And I'm not going to go into too much detail because all of our, our sessions are confidential. Um, but this sergeant had to make some major decisions the day before involving uh, a kid and that, that uh, was found in the pool floating. And the sergeant was debating whether or not the right decisions were made on their part. Right? And, and there was a lot of self-doubt. And through that coaching session, the, the, the coach in training was able to shift the perspective to where you could see it, literally see it in the sergeant's face. The moment that perspective was shifted, the face just lit up. And it was like that person was carrying all this weight just from the, the shift before her. Before she was starting the shift that day. And that helped. And, and, she, and she was just amazed. Like, oh, my God, I cannot believe that that really helped. Right? We didn't, we're not counselors. We're not psychiatrists. But sometimes authors just need a vent. Sometimes they just need to shift that perspective. And, and what we train our coaches to do is if it sounds like somebody really needs something deeper than coaching, you know, it's not, don't hesitate to uh, bring up the idea of, how, are you seeing a psychiatrist? Are you, are you seeing a counselor? There's nothing wrong with that. We're not in competition with any of them. We, we, we'd love to work, you know, together. And, and we're, we're talking to a company in, a health and wellness company in, in San Diego. And they, they deal more with the, the psych, uh, psychiatry, the counseling aspect of it. So, um, you know, we're, we're looking to partner up with organizations like that. Because if we have a client that we think needs more than just coaching, then we can refer them, you know, to these to these people who are trained in that area, right? Uh, we we're not we don't want to step on on anybody's toes. We're coaches. We're not psychiatrists. We're not counselors. So, but we can work together. What's the website if somebody wants to get to your company? Uh, LawEnforcementCoaching.com. It uh, it should be live next week. Okay. Yeah. So we had to revamp everything over the summer. So uh, it should be live next week, lawenforcementcoaching.com. And uh, if they need, somebody needs to reach me, they can reach me at uh, chris at lawenforcementcoaching.com. I'll put those both in the show notes. Yeah. And you got my, my business card. Uh, you can put that up there. Any last minute or last pieces of advice you'd like to get out to anybody who might be struggling with something or thinking they might need a life coach? Yeah, you know, uh, it's always good to, to talk to somebody. And, and you don't have to talk to a coach. You can just talk to a coworker, right? Allow that venting process to happen. It's okay to talk to each other. And if somebody comes to you and is venting to you, stop what you're doing if you can and listen. Just listen. You don't have to interrupt. You don't have to give advice. All you need to have is that lending ear. Allow them to talk and to vent. And that is, that is such a big thing that we don't do in law enforcement. We don't talk to each other, right? We, or or we're, we'll laugh it off. We'll joke it off, you know, quit being a blank, you know, um, suck it up. Right. Uh, but here's the deal. 
if somebody comes to you and starts opening up, it means something. It means they really need it. Think about that. You know, and and my my old agency when I was still active, everybody knew I did hypnotherapy and I did coaching, you know. And so it wasn't uncommon. I'd check out at a fire station to do paperwork and then an officer would roll in because they because we had GPS, you know. And so they come in, sit in the little office where I sit themselves down and then just start opening up to me. Right. And it, it, and, and these are officers that I'd never even carried a conversation with, but, but they knew what I did. And so what that told me is, man, they were really hurting so much so that they're willing to open up to me while they're in uniform on duty. And, and they don't really even know me. Right. That showed how much they needed it. And first time that happened to me, the, the officer uh, broke out in tears, was crying. Was, he was, I was allowing him to, and I, that never happened to me before. I've never seen an officer short of being at a funeral in uniform cry. And I didn't know what to do when that first happened to me. And, uh, you know, so I just, you know, did my, you know, I didn't do any hypno cause I don't not do any, any, I don't do ever do hypnotherapy stuff, you know, at work, but coaching techniques, I can do that. And, I just, I did some, some, you know, minor coaching without going too deep because we're at work and we're on duty. Right. But it, it was enough to help this officer feel better. And that became kind of like the norm. People would just come to me. I'd, I remember I'm walking through the hall and, you know, I get a guy stop me. Hey, can I talk to you for a second? Yeah, sure. What's up? And then they would unload on stuff. And I just sit there at my, my retirement I was all stressing out about, you know, going to my ceremony. I'm in my, I'm at my locker and I'm putting my class A uniform on. Right. And then, uh, uh, a guy or a coworker comes up to me, doesn't know, you know, he's working the next shift. Right. So he's, you know, he's got to get dressed for the next shift, but he started talking to me and he was unloading some heavy stuff to me. Right. As I, and so I'm sitting, standing there like in my undies, you know, like, but that's what happens with coaching. It can happen anywhere at any time. So out of respect for him, even though I knew I was going to, I was going to retire, I just stopped what I was doing and I listened and, and, and allowed him to just vent. And I did my little coaching that I, I needed to do. And then that was, he needed that. He needed that to start a shift. And then he, he walked, you know, he left and I'm like, Oh my God, like I got literally two minutes to get to the ceremony, <laughs> which is, you know, I got to go down the hall and lobby and whatever. So I'm putting my uniform on and, and, and I'm, I'm in a, I'm in a rush. I'm in a hurry. And I literally, I, I think I was maybe one or two minutes late. I walked in and you know, I, I kind of felt like people were looking at me like you arrogant, you know, you're late to your own, you know, whatever, making us wait. And it's like, but they didn't know what I was doing. They didn't know I was just talking to somebody. And that's the power of coaching. Once officers know they have that resource within reach, especially if you have somebody in your own agency, God, that's so powerful. It's just so powerful. These officers, allowing them to vent, allowing them to cry, right? Imagine how much pain they've been holding in for years that they're going to cry in front of you. You know, it's just like me when I went through post-traumatic stress. I didn't care. What, you know, I wrote it down in the paperwork. Why? Because I didn't care anymore because I was rock bottom. I needed help. And that's kind of how I look at it with these, with these officers. Uh, coaching is, uh, I think, is a great tool. We are creating that, that cultural shift that we need in law enforcement. Gone are the days of bottle everything up, suck it up, you'll be fine. No, no, no. That's not, that doesn't work, right? 
It's okay to talk to each other, right? It's okay to vent, communicate Some, with somebody. It doesn't have to be the coach, coworker, significant other, somebody. I appreciate your time, sir. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for taking your time to listen to the podcast. I truly hope you enjoyed it. Not only is the podcast available on audio platforms, but you can also watch it on YouTube at the Transition Drill Podcast channel. Please subscribe for future episodes. The best way you can help the show is by getting the word out. If you think somebody else might enjoy it, I would appreciate it if you would share it with them. Also, if you have the time, please go to Apple Podcasts and leave me a rating. I welcome your feedback, both positive and negative. You can also go to the website, transitiondrillpodcast.com, and through the contact tab, send a message directly to my email with any comments or suggestions. Thank you again, and I hope you tune in for the next one.